No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 8 Live. And we're welcoming back a friend of the program. He was on actually a little over a year ago. I was just looking at it now. He was on uh, May 20th, 2013, so now he's back here on June 3rd talking about Dr. Tyler Cokejohn. He is a professor of microbiology at the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine, and he's an adjunct senior scientist at Banner Sun Health Research Institute. He's also a keen observer and student of the world of the paranormal. So he's uh, one of those rare folks who is in academia who will actually say they are interested in the paranormal and will talk about it. So that's what we're going to be doing here tonight, talking about how to apply science to the paranormal and Really just kind of having a jam session because uh, the last time he was on the show was an epic edition of the program. Uh, ran over three hours. It was just an absolute marathon. and I really enjoyed talking to him quite a bit, so I wanted to get him back here on the live show. So welcome back to the show, Dr. Tyler Cokejohn. Hey, thanks, Tim. I guess, you know, let's start off sort of just, uh, we, we've done the bio background on you before, and folks can hear that uh, on the previous edition of the show that you were on. Um, you know, what's a, what, what have you been up to in the last year as far as uh, in the realm of the paranormal? I know you're, as I said at the beginning here, you're a keen observer of all this. So uh, has anything piqued your interest, I guess you could say, uh, you know, in the last 12 months or so? Oh, my God, there's always, always something going on. Um, <laughs> we know, I think we were talking last year about Bigfoot quite a bit, mm. and um, that sort of, I guess, kind of tapered off a little bit, although Rick Dyer tried yeah, um, but the uh, the thing that has really kind of caught me um, in terms of DNA work and uh, paranormal phenomena or phenomena thought to be paranormal, the Paracas skulls has been kind of interesting, and I'm awaiting uh, more data yeah. from that particular group and uh, thinking that you know perhaps they will uh, come forward with something that we can parse and argue about. Um, haven't seen anything yet, and so far, you know, they've uh, they've gotten a long way with uh, very little data uh, that they'll show. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, whether those skulls uh, are uh, human or something other, uh, be quite fascinating, and perhaps DNA will help us uh, figure that out. Well, it's interesting. We, as I said, we talked like in May, and 
after that, all that DNA stuff did kind of shake out as far as the Bigfoot um, research that was being done uh, over there in the UK. So it's kind of interesting. And I, I saw you did a blog post for uh, our mutual friend Jeremy Vaney's blog, uh, Vey, uh, J-Vey. I always get it mixed up. It's J-A-Y-V-A-Y. Um, just about how once science get, gets involved in a lot of this, sometimes these stories fall apart, like the uh, the one about the... It was. Uh, they thought it was some kind of missing link type thing, and it turned out it was an African person. This was like a long time ago. I forget the name of the uh, the story. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, not offhand. You're talk- not talking about Piltdown Man or anything, are you? No, no, no. I'm talking oh. about. Uh, I don't have it in front of me here, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I'm trying to remember it now. Yeah, I don't recall it off the top of my head, but uh, oh, okay. so I'll, I'll, I'll Zana. I think it was Zana or something like that. Zana no, it doesn't ring a bell. Okay. Well, it's just interesting that the more you, the more you apply the science to it, these things just to fall apart. That's kind of the point I was trying to make. Just that uh, you know, it really separates the myth and legend from the fact uh, once you can actually apply some kind of testing to it. It can, it can. Uh, sometimes there's a there's an art of interpretation that uh, the sequences may or may not uh, be definitive. Uh, a great Example of that is the Star Child, uh, where Lloyd Pye had, uh, and, and I give him credit, he had tried to use what I think was the best possible tool, which was to do uh, DNA sequence analysis of basically sequences extracted from the bone. Hmm. Now, his data that he got, um, I would not have interpreted it the same way as as Mr. Pye. And uh, he saw it as... Uh, earth-shaking evidence for some kind of uh, otherworldly origin for the star child. And uh, I looked at it and said, now, you know what, this is, this is an artifact. This is an artifact of basically storage and age. DNA has kind of characteristic ways it falls apart. Uh, his sequence was wrong uh, because he had a stop code on in there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, just kind of didn't agree, but there was something to shoot at. Hmm. You know, something to look at, and so I give Mr. Pie, great late Mr. Pie, yeah, unfortunately, uh, credit for going uh, that direction. But uh, we did not agree on very much uh, after that. So you can have the data can be there, but people can kind of disagree. Uh, but what will happen is, ultimately, if enough folks look at it, same as the the Ketchum data with Bigfoot, right, you'll get to a consensus point. And, you know, people will say, no, nah, no, nah, you know what, that's really stretching it. Or, yeah, that's really on target, but look at this. And, uh, and that's what we need. That's what the Paracas skulls lack at this stage. We need something on the table to look at. And uh, once we've got that, I agree with you that the judgment can be swift, mm. very swift. Yeah, I've got, uh, got the article here up about that. It was, it was Zane of the Wild Woman. And it was uh, Brian Sykes was doing the research, and oh, they found okay. out that it was uh, it, it had been long thought that she was some kind of domesticated uh, Almasti or Almas, which is like a, a version of Bigfoot. Oh, okay. And then it turned out it was it was a person who was a sub-Saharan African. So okay. sounds like yeah, and this, and then, this all went down in like the 19th century. So there's a lot of uh, weird issues, I'm sure, afloat in that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. The older some of the remains are and, and the more hands that they pass through, that also complicates things mm. um, 
It's uh, if I had to pick a project, I I would never have picked the Star Child, for example, to work on because it's so technically difficult. And uh, you know, to get anything out of that at all was uh, pretty amazing. Yeah. But um, uh, you know, I mean, it's the 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 Bigfoot. Um, I presume the Paracas skulls. If and when we see something, will go uh, pretty fast. No. Nope. Uh, I have I mean, this. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say that that uh, if you recall, also this, this over the last year, uh, the Atacama humanoid, mm. uh, oh, Doctor yeah. Greer, that had a pretty short half life. Once uh, Doctor Gary Nolan from Stanford University got on board, yeah, and um, the idea that that entity was uh, from another world didn't last very long at all. And uh, that is interesting, but you can see that the half-life of ideas now, if there's testable material, can be very, very short. Right, right. Well, the question I had, uh, I was talking to Greg Bishop about this uh, on the year in review show, and I, I, I knew I had to ask you this eventually, because I saw this article, uh, you may have seen it, I thought I sent it to you, it was a while ago, so we we both probably going to be foggy about this, uh, but it was about like an artist who could take the DNA off of discarded chewing gum and, sure. and make face and make faces somehow out of it? Sure, so they say. Yeah. Sure. Well, that that was my question. Like, how come... Because I don't know anything about DNA, really, um, which I'm sure is a surprise to the listeners. <laughs> um, so, like, what, what, what are the... I guess, what are the limitations of what we can do with it? Because you hear all these people, they say they have, like, Bigfoot DNA or whatever. There's, there's not, like, any machine. You can just take the DNA, take the Bigfoot hair or whatever, put it in something, and then have it spit out a little miniature model of whatever it came from, right? Or can you? Or is there a way to do that? Well, uh, we can do a lot of things. The term people would use is in silico, which means computer simulation. Hmm. And uh, the idea of the, of the face, for example, from the, the DNA sample is an interesting uh, and I would say great, gross overextension of what really can be done reliably with the DNA sequence. And, and the reason is, is uh, not that you can't deduce a lot. I mean, we can figure out hair color. Uh, you know, some of those properties are fairly straightforward. But to, to take and say, okay, this is what the person will look like, uh, we're not at that stage yet, and we're not going to be for quite a while. And, and the reason is that the, the DNA sequence is a map of potentials and probabilities and possibilities. What actually gets put out there, what actually gets created, is dependent very much on the environment uh, that the infant or, or whomever uh, is raised in and held in, uh, you know, what mom was like, uh, all those things uh, during pregnancy, for yeah. example, uh, have a great effect and impact. So you could think of um, a, a real simple example would be that you might have the genetic capability of being six feet four inches tall, but if you aren't fed the right diet as a kid, if you're starved, for example, you're not going to reach that, that height. You're not going to attain your genetic potential. Yeah. And so we would misread that completely in the skeleton if we got a fragment. we go, oh, this guy was big, and I had potential to play in the NFL, and we'd be wrong. Interesting, interesting. So they just don't, so, they just, yeah, I guess I see what you're saying, because it's like a blueprint, as they all say about the DNA. So they, it's just the basic what could happen. 
what could happen. And what does happen can be rather different, hmm. rather different. And uh, even things that, that we can't get a handle on, like stress, for example, can uh, have an impact on how you kind of turn out. Yeah. Um, the strangest one of all to think about is uh, in the, the process of, of how things impact DNA without really being written in is epigenomics. Uh, one of the strangest things is that what happened to your father and perhaps his father happens to you. It's passed down through these modifications and other things through the generations, and those are not directly readable in the basic sequence. You, you would miss them. You'd have to look at them in a different way. What are these? What, what's the? What, give me an example, I guess. Is uh, yeah. uh, one of the things that that is interesting is uh, for I think it was uh, diethylstilbestrol. If uh, a mother had been exposed to that uh, during pregnancy, her child, for example, might have a higher risk of cancer later in life. And uh, it was partially, I believe, I'm correct on this. Have to have your listeners check me. Uh, that it was partially due to modifications passed down through the generations and then from that child to the next generation. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really quite fascinating. The, the, if people are interested, they can look up uh, epigenomics, and then you can find out, or epigenetics. And uh, what it is is a modification of the genome, not really a change in the DNA sequence, but a modification in the genome that would lead to things like gene expression pattern changes that are somewhat heritable, actually sometimes very heritable. And hmm. so we can have these, these things pass through that we can't read in the standard way when we yeah. read the book of the genes. That's so, really uh, strange. Yeah. So, wow. you know, I mean, if you had, if your family, for example, had been farmers and exposed to pesticides, uh, we could have standard DNA damage, but we might also have a raft of gene, DNA uh, gene expression changes that are also being passed right along, so that's that's kind of funky. Yeah, that is weird. Okay, so we can't so we can't take the so we can't just take a take a, a piece of Bigfoot hair and like put it in a machine and get a little mini Bigfoot model. Yeah, or see what he would look like. For example, we could make an approximation. So uh, I think you know the the most you could say is yeah, you could you could draw a picture and uh, maybe get some information in terms of bone structure or whatnot, assuming yeah. all factors were kind of equal, this is how we think it might play out. But uh, beyond that, it's not like you're going to pick him out of a lineup yeah, and go exactly. back to a, you know, a yearbook from 1880 and go, that's him? Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, we'll break from tradition a little bit here because we've got a caller on the line, and we almost never get a caller this early in the show. So let's, uh, let's bring him on, on the deck here and see what, see what they have to say. It could be somebody – sometimes they call in just to listen because they can't get – Access to the computer, so we'll we'll try them here because they've been on hold for ten minutes. So if they're if they're trying to get in and talk, I'd feel bad uh, keeping them on hold for much longer. So let's see what's going on. Five one eight area code. Uh, what's your name and uh, what's your question, my friend? Hi, this is John. How you doing, Hello? John? What's going on, buddy? Hi. Uh, do you have a question for Doctor Tyler Coke, John? Yes, I do. Uh, it's in okay. regards to the um, Paracas skulls. Mm-hmm. I had a question in regards to um, I wrote this a while ago uh, but I never had a chance to uh, Dr. Cotron, Um mm-hmm. let me see it's uh, in regards to 
gene mutation in regards to um, adaptation to body modification, like the cradle borning that's done, uh, that possibly was done to the Paracas skulls. And I just wanted to know if that if that cradle boarding could be passed on um, through uh, over over time. Um, Interesting. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I'm I'm babbling here. I'm just trying to read. No, no. I think we. I think, no. I, think, <laughs> I think. I think we get your question. Yeah. It's. Uh, okay. So I have a I dog who has a um, has a it's a toy rat terrier and it has a short tail. And I was told to the breeder that it was done through over years of modification, how they bobbed the dog's tail. And I did a search on the web about that. It's called um, T-Box Transcription Factor T-Gene. And and supposedly, over time, that occurs, like in the litter that the dog was in, um, six, six of the dogs had, long tails, but the, our dog had the short tail. And I just want to know, is that possible to happen? You know, um, is that just a fallacy, or um, could that be why the Paracas skulls, uh, you know, like over time, cradle boarding, could that be passed on? We got you. I'm we sorry if I'm babbling. It's okay. okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry no, about no. it. You're doing great. Tyler, what do, what do you think of that? That's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting no, question. It's a good question, and it's something that geneticists have struggled with for quite a while. Uh, ever since the time of a guy named Lamarck, when we were trying to figure out how hereditary factors actually worked, uh, one of the questions, and one of the experiments done, by the way, was to whack off the tails of mice and then see if the next generation had short tails or shorter tails or whatnot. Hmm. Um, the weakness in those, in those studies is that you, you get tired and you only do a limited number of generations. In terms of the Paracas skulls, uh, I guess you'd have to go back and see if you could establish a lineage and find out. I mean, this is the, the difficulty is that we're looking at everything backwards now. Right. And uh, to my knowledge, the, the, the tradition has died out. I don't know that anybody does that anymore, uh, but maybe I'm wrong. But the, the way you could ask that question is to simply try to trace back through the generations and, and establish whether they had to do any of the actual confinement of the cranium or if, if, with time if they actually stopped or not. My suspicion, and it's just a suspicion, it's just an opinion, is, is that probably this is not inherited in a standard way. In, in other words, that if you wanted to have a kid with that cranium, you'd have to deform it yourself would be my guess hmm. but the the way to go about it and i think the the really logical way is uh, just to say well let's test it out let's see what data we can get now we're not going to do the experiment on any kids but maybe we could find an animal model oh god all well, right uh, no but i mean this this is what i'd say is you, you start no, no, by, no, i just feel bad for the animal that's like <laughs> well, oh yeah, yeah that's, that's the hard part about animal research. Mm. But one of the one of the things we were talking about is the epigenetic, the epiphenomenon of the genome where it's modified as a, a consequence of environmental conditions and behaviors of parents and those are, are passed on. Those are actually not the standard genes that that we've thought about, you know, in, in the classic way. And so some of the things that 
were dismissed, that Lamarckism was absolutely dismissed, are kind of coming back now, in a sense, as we found out more about how you really can have sort of heritable patterns that aren't really in the, encoded in the sort of the, the standard way of the DNA sequence, which, which is really quite interesting. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Although the, what, what you're talking about sounds more chemically influenced, and, and what John's talking about is... Um, physical. Physical, right? Physical, so, yeah. yeah I, that's the... I was wondering if that was even possible. Well, I'd say my instinct would be I'd say no, but if you, Tim already put a very fine point on it, the experience that we have is primarily something a little bit different and not so much, you know, the kind of thing that you're talking about. And that's where I'd say that, that we need to really kind of look at other evidence. If we could establish lineages and records, but I don't think those are, are going to be very easy to, to do Yeah. Uh, just based on the situation. Yeah. And then failing that, then you can fall back on saying, well, we could, we could maybe try some experiments. But uh, you, you just have to be careful um, in general that you don't dismiss things too fast in that, you know, my experience is X, Y, or Z, therefore uh, what you have to say is my hypothesis is. Hmm. But uh, that could, that's subject to um, criticism and uh, experimental verification. Okay. All set, John? How, how's that for an answer for you, buddy? Oh, that's fine. I'll let somebody else uh, get online, or I'll just listen to you guys. <laughs> All right, thanks for calling okay. in. Yeah, thanks for okay, calling. Thank good you. question. Yeah, that was a great question. Okay, have a good night, guys. You too. Good night. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I would think that that if it was something that was, if it could be passed down that way, that it would mess up the whole, the whole like childbirthing situation too. The baby's head would be all misshapen, and maybe he would die in, in childbirth. And so who knows? You would again another great observation. Uh, you would have to do it the right way you mm. know, if you kept the dimension narrow. But I don't know how that would work in utero because it's a very fairly tight fit there. Yeah. So that's where I, I would say that the evidence right now would make me say no, I don't think so. But um, you know, one of the things that could be done is to uh, to look at it. And, uh, you know, at least ponder it. There's no harm in that. Now, I'm looking at uh, one of your articles here uh, on, on Jeremy's blog here, and I'm not sure if I said it right or not. It's J-Vay. I might have called it Vay-J. I sometimes do that, much to his chagrin. But you, uh, you have an article here on uh, – it says, Try a New Hypothesis, Sherlock. It's from uh, about a couple months ago. And you say, uh, ufology's greatest failing is a persistent and almost universal – studied indifference toward uh, – well, I skipped ahead here – toward uh, getting hard evidence, it says. Uh, multiple opportunities to obtain hypothesis confirming hard evidence have been and continue to be ignored. Um, what, what are these opportunities, I guess, uh, and, and why do you think they're being ignored? I can't tell you why people do what, what they yeah. do. <laughs> I, can, I can guess, you know, but uh, – and I can, I can have really nefarious uh, plots. Hmm. The uh, – the opportunities that I would say um, would be people who make, uh, talking about alien abductions specifically. Yeah. Uh, people who have issued claims that they are um, hybrids between some other world uh, alien and a human being, or their children or grandchildren uh, are some sort of hybrids and they have uh, um, knowledge of this somehow. Uh, I would say, uh, well, then we're missing an opportunity for uh, a really dramatic 
revelation. So could the hypotheses, say, of, of David Jacobs be correct? Um, those people who are hybrids, if they would come forward, that would not be too difficult for uh, modern genomic uh, protocols to reveal. And if you think about the great example is, is Dr. Nolan's work with ADA that uh, beginning uh, within, I think, a matter of weeks, they knew that uh, this thing was not from another world, it was human. And uh, uh, so I would, would say that the missed opportunities are, are these claims, and we just have hmm. to say that they're claims, that haven't been completely investigated, that could be now. 25 years ago, we couldn't. We, we didn't have the technology, but uh, a lot of the technology now has raced to the point where it's extremely uh, possible to do these things. And uh, as with Adar, you wouldn't have to necessarily even do the whole thing. Just parts of it might suffice. Yeah. Right. We, so, yeah, go ahead. No, the, the importance of that uh, would be, uh, in my view, and the, the huge missed opportunity, I think, with alien abductions is to bat down some of the hypotheses that don't work. Mm, right. uh, I'm not going to say, therefore, the entire abduction phenomenon is invalidated. Not at all. I want to be very clear that we still do not understand what the basis of these reports would be. But what's important to do is to have hypotheses and then examine them. And that's where we've had the great disconnect, that we've had uh, people that I've criticized very heavily, uh, David Jacobs being one of them, who create ornate theories that they never really check when, in fact, they could. And if your hypothesis is wrong, no matter how beautiful it is, it's wrong, and we need to work elsewhere. And I, I think, honestly, one of the great tragedies of abduction research is that it's been sort of stymied because we can't get past uh, what I consider to be extremely weak uh, hypotheses that have been accepted as dogma and are repeated over and over again instead of uh, trying new things and looking at the phenomena in new ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's ufology's problem as a whole. It's uh, it's a mess. And I know, like you were saying, you didn't want you, you know you can't really put yourself into the mind of these folks who don't want to test the stuff and. Part of it is, I think, um, and I have this in the notes here, it's sort of like ufology and the paranormal in general are weird, sort of, obviously it's weird, but it's even more troubling in a sense when you look at it as a research community because it's it's sort of like entirely driven by the the unknown, by the by the tantalizing unknown in a different sort of way than, than other sciences are. Do you know what I mean? It's It's like... With other sciences, you're trying to get, to, you're trying to understand things, but you're working towards, you know, you, work, you got, I guess you have to work towards getting grants and stuff like that. With ufology, it's like you need to kind of keep amping up the mystery in order to generate the interest and the money to to keep it going. You follow me? I do, and I think you're absolutely correct. That one of the things that becomes very important is the next story, the next new story, the the, the continuing of the whatever you want to call it, the saga, for example, uh, rather than, as you point out, uh, trying to solve something or reach a, a point where you can have the point, the road forks and you can go a different direction. Uh, it's uh, The other thing that's quite striking 
is that in more mainstream science, you, you have the competitive aspect that I, I don't feel is is here. In we'll just pick on abduction research mm-hmm. in, in that particular little subgenre. That everybody seems to have kind of divided up into small market niches, whereas in in more mainstream science, you've got to pick up the sharpest tools. If there's a, a gene analysis tool and you're not using it, your grant's never going to get approved. Yeah. They're going to go, dude, dude, why are you interviewing patients or hypnotizing them when, in fact, you could do these two tests and be done with it and move on? And we, it's just such a different world. Uh, and that's not the fault of, of the investigators. I mean, we have the advantage of, of, of grant money uh, in mainstream research that th- these people in abductology don't. That, you know, they kind of have to find a way. But uh, in terms of what they're doing, it's really oftentimes uh, a pale imitation of real science, and uh, that's a sad state. And I think, again, it's led to the the complete sort of, I guess, uh, entrapment of the field in a, in a little circle, and it can't get out of it. And we can't really get anywhere if we just do the same things over and over again, not when there's new tools that would enable somebody to do a little bit more. Exactly, and I think it's, it adds to the sort of disingenuous feel to the entire to the entire field of paranormal research where it's like you can't it, it feels more like you're being conned at least that's how I feel a lot of times where I'm not really getting a straight answer because it's it's important that I don't get a straight answer so I continue to keep coming back for more information it could be uh, again we don't know what's in the hearts of the investigator and the other thing that to keep in mind is uh, I don't have any knowledge as to whether some of them actually haven't gone ahead and done the testing. Mm. You know, I mean, this is <clears throat> a possibility that they have the data and uh, for whatever reason are not ready to, to publish it yet. We, we just don't know. But um, I think in some instances uh, people are well-meaning but don't really know what's going on. And, and so that... Um, it's not really a um, nefarious thing on their part. It's more of uh, don't realize what can be done. And I'll just say that I've heard people on shows, uh, Future Theater, uh, with Bill and Nancy Burns, mm-hmm. where um, the person came out and said, yeah, I'm, I'm a hybrid, I'm a breeder, uh, you know, and this, that, and the other thing has happened to me, and um, claiming modification to the genome, and I'm going, well, there are some simple tests. Mm. And I just don't think that they understood that. And really, if you work backwards and you think that if they really had true intent to deceive, they wouldn't have said that if they knew what the real story was. So right, either right. they made a colossal error mm. or have no idea what's going on or maybe a little bit of both. Um, hard to tell. But, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily saying that everyone is trying to pull the wool over everyone's eyes. Right. It's almost, a, I think it's like an institutionalized issue, in a sense, where the entire yeah. the entire research field has become more of a business that's driven by propagating the myth or propagating the mystery, excuse me, and then rather than driving towards get driving towards solving the mystery. I think you're right. Uh, it, this, we just happen to have the, the, the same opinion here, but if you go back and you want to look at it a, a little bit more objectively, you can follow the trajectory of some of the investigators over time. 
and you can see how the stories have built. Um, think about the indigo children and the different waves of, of I forget what they're termed, uh, the different levels of indigo children. I'm not using the right term now. Yeah, I'm, va- I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with the indigo children, but I've yeah, kind of like just shake my head at the whole <laughs> Yeah, concept. if you have, you know, and it, if it doesn't work for you, it really doesn't work for you. But uh, for people that feel that it explains things about their children, for example, I'm sure it could be very powerful uh, in, inducement to uh, to listen further. But uh, as with David Jacobs, uh, Bud Hopkins, and I think with the Indigo uh, people, Dolores Cannon and is it Mary Rodwell, uh, I'm not sure if I remember the names hmm. properly. There's a whole uh, bunch of folks pushing Indigo children nowadays. Yeah. And the stories kind of grow with time. Hmm. And um, uh, so I think you know that would be an objective measure that would kind of uh, bolster your idea that, yeah, it's about the next story it's about building and um if you notice they do in, in a way kind of build which is any good narrative would and you know you could come back and say yeah but you know look they have to dude because we're finding out more information and everything's consistent and what i'm not sensing is uh anything other than building a narrative in, in terms of building a narrative and not really checking it in the way that a scientist might or right. confirming it in a way that a scientist might and in defense of the field now, I'm going to completely turn around here because it's we're getting super meta on this, but that's why I wanted to have you on the show because I like talking to you about this kind of stuff where we can look at it, you know, from a broader perspective. Um, you know, I thought you were going to say something else when you said uh, when you sort of put yourself in the shoes of the researchers there and you were like, hey, it keeps changing. There's also the whole issue of like, there's no money or anything. This has to be. There, there are no grants given for paranormal research really i mean there probably are some small sort of grants and and some folks are are working toward their doctorate under some kind of paranormal umbrella but it's very very small but aside from that it 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 has to sort of uh it kind of has to fund itself in a way it does it does and that can create its own unique set of pressures right exactly uh, unless you have someone like lawrence rockefeller uh a, a bigelow for example, who's willing to underwrite, um, you're out there on your own, and you've got to come up with uh, something saleable or at least a, a concept. Now, we have Kickstarter where you could ask for money to uh, to move forward, but it, it does complicate the situation. I think it, it, there's a perverse incentive to uh, to build stories that maybe aren't there. But let me just point out that Mainstream scientists also build up, tout, trumpet their own results, and sometimes far more than they should. Mm. So uh, a great example is in the Alzheimer's field, and I think today there were two things on Twitter about amazing new possible, could be, I don't know, maybe cures, for Alzheimer's disease. And yeah, you know what? If you squint your eyes and you, you look at it and don't think about it too much, and maybe if that animal works just like a human, we got it. Yeah. But um, it's a game. It's a game. And uh, and uh, even the mainstream scientists uh, will play it to some extent as well. I can so, see that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, if you don't do it, Tim, you don't get the attention, and you don't draw the accolades and... and you need that. You need the approval of your peers, and 
it really doesn't hurt to have the New York Times take interest in your studies and uh, and write that up. Oh yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they're driven kind of by the same uh, motivators as as the paranormal in a way, but it's just more accepted, I guess, more mainstream. Some of the pressures are remarkably similar. Uh, I think that the parameters of behavior. Uh, I, I think are a little bit different in that there's a line that mainstream scientists won't cross. Or if one of the things, if, if you see them in an interview, you can start to tell they'll, they'll go, well, you know, uh, we have to step back and, and consider this in a broader context. That usually means uh, the reporter or someone is pushing them to a point that they want a conclusion that mm. the scientists can't comfortably reach. Yeah, yeah, they want them to speculate or something like, uh, or, or, or to confirm the reporter's speculation or something. Exactly, yeah. and and be more concrete. Mm. And a great example of where we've had problems with that has been with climate change research, where you know people will come out and and say, yeah, you know, hot summer that definitely means. Uh, global change is here, and then somebody else will come back and say, hold it, hold it, hold it. Uh, it's more complicated than that. And so when, when, you, when you start to see the scientists or hear the scientists qualify, it usually means they've reached the discomfort zone. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I haven't heard that very frequently with uh, paranormal work. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was just going to say that. You don't... <laughs> You don't hear usually. Usually, it's the opposite. Usually, they're sort of they love that kind of thing and they'll keep it going for a while. So it's you know, but I don't mean to rip on the paranormal because I love the paranormal and uh, I find it to be fascinating. I just I just wish it was more. I just wish it worked better. I guess is the best way to put it. I just don't feel like it's really. Uh, I just don't feel like the process is 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 uh, is working very well. If that makes any sense. It has it has some challenges. Let's put it that way. But I I look at it in in the same way. But I'll also say, but yet you know there are people out there who are willing and are trying to do the right things. And uh, one of the things that happens I, I feel is that people are interested. They're not necessarily uh, well grounded in scientific investigations. This is kind of an esoteric art itself. Mm. And they go out and they do things, and, and they learn about controls and, and interpretation sort of the hard way, kind of slowly, one step at a time. And, uh, um, you know, so we could say scientifically that's not the best, but I'll just point out that we all start somewhere. And even the red-hot scientists, like somebody like Dr. Gary Nolan, who's superbly accomplished, didn't start out at birth you know, writing Nobel Prize winning grants. It's a learning process. Yeah. And so I'd say we have some hope because there are some people who are willing to learn. Mm. And uh, uh, we'll ask you questions, and uh, like John tonight, and, uh, and say, yeah, you know, let's talk about this or that, or, uh, you know, what could you do, or what are your suggestions? Um, I, I did communicate with Lloyd Pye uh, a few times before his death, and uh, he at least listened to me. I don't think he liked what I had to say, but, you know, that's for him to decide. Yeah. But at least he was willing to entertain some unsolicited thoughts. So I, I look at it as, yeah, I agree, there are, are some problems, but uh, as long as people are willing to investigate things that are interesting and, uh, and try, then at least we have some hope. Now, I, don't, I didn't really follow the specifics of the whole uh, the thing with Gary Nolan. Was he... I'm surprised he even got mixed up in an ET situation like that. 
and what was he uh, you know how, how how did he feel after the whole thing was all said and done because it got a lot of uh, media attention it's interesting uh, Jack Brewer has a, a blog post on it that he just put up I think yesterday or maybe Monday and uh, this is at the UFO trail that's that's Jack's blog mm-hmm. and he sent Dr. Nolan some questions it's exactly that how did you get started and uh, kind of how did it go and uh, my understanding is uh, overall and in general uh, Dr. Nolan became aware of uh, the work uh, or uh, of ADA somehow and said hey I could help and uh, just volunteered his services got in touch somehow with uh, Dr. Greer and I guess he got a response right away and so they began to communicate and uh, took off from there in terms of how it's ultimately going to play out, I, I can't really tell you uh, what the plan is. I understand that a paper uh, is being prepared. It's unclear to me if that paper will deal with strictly the origin of ADA or if there are two papers because there's something Dr. Nolan apparently is investigating in terms of genetic mutations that could ac- accommodate or uh, explain the bizarre structure of that guy because he's very small. And uh, what that will be, I don't know. That, that's another project that I, I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole because it would be very difficult to, first of all, find unknown mutations. If you found a standard mutation for dwarfism, that would be one thing. Hmm. But it's going to be a very difficult process. So anyway, there, there are papers coming out and um, how that will play out and uh, how... Dr. Greer will be recognized or noted on those. I, I don't know. Interesting. Okay, so it's still it's still percolating then. It is, as, as I understand it, and you can get the the story on Jack Brewer's uh, blog, and uh, he had quite a bit to say about uh, Star Child, and uh, it's interesting that some of his uh, experiences with Mr. Pye were uh, strikingly similar to uh, to mine, but. Uh, Anyway, he has some interesting things to say. I, I think he's he's uh, a bit like me. It's just somebody that has an innate interest and uh, is open to uh, saying, well, you know what, I'm in a position where I could help. Why don't you let me help? Yeah. Uh, uh, and so he was able to uh, make a contribution, a fast one. Have so, you – this there's a lot of talk about people uh, – I, I don't know if we talked about this last time you were on the show, but this, this always talk about – you know, pressure in the academic community not to get mixed up in all this stuff. Have you ever sort of uh, get, gotten any pushback, or or people just kind of let you do your thing? Uh, I've been very fortunate that my uh, school and colleagues are uh, very supportive. And as more people have found out uh, that I'm interested, I've, I've had uh, one um, guy who is uh, a really high-powered software engineer, uh, avionics engineer, and then uh, one person who's a scientist have come up and told me about their experiences oh, because wow. they they realize that I wouldn't just dismiss them. Hmm. And uh, so what you find is that yeah, in fact, people do scientists do have uh, paranormal experiences. There's no real stricture from the school uh, with doing these things, provided I follow the rules for work with uh, human subjects and get the proper uh, paperwork filed for receiving samples. Um, they will allow me to do uh, whatever I feel I want to do, provided I conduct myself as a scientist. Now, right. uh, I'll just tell you that 
David Jacobs, I think, got away with quite a bit at, at Temple. Yeah. I have to imagine it's because probably the university didn't know what he was doing, but maybe I'm wrong on that that point. Uh, that's just my opinion, and obviously others have different opinions as to the value of his his work and his uh, conclusions. But no, no pushback, no problems. Uh, Sounds almost like the opposite in a way. Uh, when uh, I write things for Jay Vay or Jeff Ritzman or with Jack Brewer, uh, those count as uh, public outreach. So they actually say, yeah, as long as you're, you're kind of doing science and showing people uh, you know, sort of uh, how scientists would approach things, uh, being a good example, I guess. Mm. Uh, they don't have any problem with it. That's great. That's really good, yeah. Yeah. Well, we need, like I said, uh, you know, like I said several times talking to you, we need more folks like you who are who are scientists to, uh, to get on board with this, at least to say, hey, let's take a look at it. Not to say, oh, this is, I have the answer to all of our problems here, you know. You're not out there going, oh, the aliens are going to cure Alzheimer's. It's... <laughs> Well, and not, neither do we necessarily have uh, any answers to paranormal questions. You know, like what what really causes this? Uh, a great example being alien abductions. Uh, I can bat down, I think, pretty solidly some of the ideas, or show where there are huge holes, but that still doesn't explain the phenomenon. Nor does it declare that there is no phenomenon. And I don't want people to think that that's the ultimate goal here. That right, right. From my perspective, the ultimate goal is to understand and explain, regardless of what it is. Exactly, so, exactly. Uh, it's it's about trying to figure out the best questions to ask. Yeah, and then and going out there and finding out. Because, I mean, just like I think you said once, it would be so cool if, if you know, uh, somebody actually put a net over Bigfoot and dragged it in. Yeah. Be great. Whoa, that was out there the whole time. <laughs> you know, I mean, so and I certainly don't, you know, lose any uh, any stature by saying Dr. Ketchum didn't have valid sequences. Uh, so I don't know what's going on. Right. Uh, and if somebody drags one in, I'm going, oh, that is cool. You know, let's have a look at it. Well, it's. It's a it's a very flummoxing in a way. I mean, I've been looking at all this for like ten years now, and and really producing content for like eight, and it's just frustrating that all the, the mysteries are all the same ever since I was a kid. Nothing, no mystery, no paranormal mystery that I can think of ever has ever been solved in my lifetime that I can you know that I can think of. Maybe ball lightning might have been one of them or something like that. <laughs> That's about it. You know. So. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, you know, since Harry Houdini uh, was thinking of ways to actually send messages back from the other side, it's it's been something uh, ghosts and communication with the dead and other things have been uh, part and parcel of human condition forever. Yeah. And uh, and so we will continue to wonder until we, we really get something definitive. So uh, <clears throat> I do think um, not too long ago we... We're communicating with uh, Lobo and Rojan mm-hmm. uh, after they were on your show, and I think that's where uh, Ro had mentioned that they had unfortunately invited a number of uh, people, scientists or academic types, who declined. Right. Couldn't even talk to them. Yeah, they and said that, that on the show, yeah. <clears throat> that just sets my teeth on edge because that's the exact opposite of what we really need and should be doing. 
if you won't talk to the public, uh, I think as a scientist you're not doing your job. As an academic, you're certainly not doing your job. And if you look, you see um, Stephen Hawking, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, you know, the other uh, uh, Lawrence Krauss, others out there, uh, high, high-profile scientists who don't need anything from us who want to come out and, and talk to us right. and explain things. And, and that's what it's all about. Well, it's, yeah, yeah. The strange and unfor- well, it's not really unfortunate. I mean, I don't know if uh, I don't know. Some days I'm on the side of ufology, and sometimes I'm not. So it depends, <laughs> on, depends on my mood. <laughs> but the unfortunate part, I guess, is uh, it's all on one side in that equation. You know, the people who who I mean, there's no one. I guess Michio Kaku might be the best uh, might be the best voice we have, sort of for the pro UFO side of things. Um, and he even he's not really like. Uh, pushing that, that they're coming here, necessarily. No, and, and there are a few. I think uh, Jeffrey Bennett, um, uh, Bernard Haish, uh, I think scientists out in California, okay, yeah. astronomer. There are a few, uh, and some higher profile than others. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, this, we could definitely use a few more. Always, always. Uh, let me see here. We're... You've, you've uh, yeah, we got another caller here uh, in the two o three area code, which I, this may be Lobo himself. Uh, oh no! Yeah, I know, and I, he may also be just listening from work. So we'll, uh, we'll we'll bring him aboard here and see what he has to say. I'm pretty sure it's Lobo. Let's see. Hello there, two o three area code. Uh, what's your name and where are you calling from? You hit the nail on the head, brother. Oh, oh boy. Oh, I'm going home. Uh-oh, yeah, man. What are Tyler, you, you love me, you know it. <laughs> are you just listening at work, or do you have a question I, or a comment? For I'm just the, listening the at the moment, yeah. No, I was told All to right. call in and harass Tyler, but I, I love Tyler, so I don't think I can harass him. <laughs> yeah, I uh, posted on Twitter, I was afraid you guys would come in and start talking about heavy water. <laughs> okay. Not a subject no, no to be subject. taken lightly, mister. No, I don't know no. what have you. I don't, I'm, out, I'm out of the loop on this. <laughs> oh, these guys are totally story. lost it. Yeah, oh. they're, they're, they're a strange pair, those two. They're, they're a strange <laughs> pair. Yeah. Last time I it. talked to them, I was, I was in bad shape myself, so I, I, I barely survived. But, yeah, all were. right, Lobo. Do you have uh, anything else to uh, throw into the mix here uh, so far I'm, in the conversation? I'm going to listen. I'm just oh, listen okay. for now. I guess I can hit. I guess I can hit the number one if I want to bug you again, right? I suppose. I have no idea what it does, but I'll, I'll put you. <laughs> I'll put you. I'm, I'm, I'm like I'm like a chimp here behind these controls, so I will. Uh, I'll put. <laughs> I'll put I you back on. on the show. Exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll put you back on mute, and uh, you can keep listening in on our conversation. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Thanks for calling, Take Lobo. Care. Thank you, no Lobo. Problem, Enjoy the show. No problem. Yeah, thanks. That's a good, actually, kind of segue, because I can jump from there into something completely different. Uh, so thank you to Lobo. So, sort of a little break for us. Uh, I, have you ever – I presume you've looked at this at, at – uh, at least uh, considered it, let's say that, because uh, look it makes it sound like you've actually uh, done any research, and you may not have. But um, what, what's your take on this autism and, and just the sheer – 
wave of autism that's sort of uh, picked up in the last like 15 years and how it's become this really prevalent uh, affliction that is very, very mysterious. This is um, one of the things that, that people have talked about uh, in terms of uh, evidence and how we parse evidence. And you often hear that, well, this is all anecdotal. It's all anecdotal. It's not important. But in actual fact, these these stories, the clinical histories and whatnot of autism and diagnosing it more frequently are very troubling. Hmm. And uh, often this is the first way that um, problems come to the fore. And so it has people really scratching their heads. And one of the things that you're probably aware of is one of the, the first things that people uh, sort of latched onto as an explanation was vaccinations. Yes. And, uh, measles, mumps, and rubella, MMR in particular. And um, what was noted was a very striking correlation that about the time the kids were receiving their first MMR vaccine, the autism began to take hold. Right. And, That's and, like a huge debate in the, you know, it's a huge it, debate in the mainstream now at this point, the, uh, absolutely. the vaccine issue. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the uh, people have looked at this in every possible way to try to figure out, you know, what in heck, is there a correlation? And, and these are not easy studies to, to do. They're really difficult. When you get to something that is as prevalent as 1 in 150 or maybe even lower now in terms of autism, wow. I mean, we have, those can, can correlate with a large number of things. And uh, one of the problems and one of the, the real difficulties here is that a correlation is not necessarily equivalent to a cause. It can be, but it's not necessarily. And so you've got to tease this all out. Mm. And um, we had some setbacks. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of Andrew Wakefield, who uh, did a study that was uh, spectacular. It was touted, but it was possibly, well, it's thought to be uh, wrong and even criminally so. He's lost his medical license, as I understand it. Oh, boy. Uh, that led to a huge uh, concern about MMR vaccines. And um, those, those issues go on. Uh, looking at the vaccine, though, is very important. And uh, people have, have tried exhaustively, really, yeah. to, uh, to figure out what's going on. And one of the, the things that you have that, that is... is um, more than a little bit scary is, is that this vaccine, MMR, and there are a few others, is actually alive. You're giving kids uh, a natural, well, an infection with the viruses, measles, yeah. mumps, and rubella, uh, very attenuated viruses, and um, they should induce immunity without causing too much trouble, but not everyone can have this vaccine. So if there's any kind of immune problem, immune suppression, something along those lines, they can't have this. They can't receive it. They can never receive it because it could be dangerous to them. So it's it's true in one way. I'm not saying that MMR, um, my personal read of the data is we have not established MMR is a risk for autism. That, that's my mm. looking at the, the data. But um, when we we think about these things, you always have to understand that anytime you take a treatment, take an aspirin, there's, this is not risk-free, that something could go wrong. And uh, um, 
But we've had so much controversy over MMR in particular, and one of the the more disappointing things from my standpoint is that when scientists began to to say, uh, I think pretty much um, in general agreement, uh, that MMR was not a cause of autism, the argument would shift. And then they'd say, well, no, 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 it, it's the thimerosal, the thimerosal. Yeah. And that's um, a preservative that we put in the vaccines uh, so that they don't basically get infected with something before you inject them into a kid. Yeah. MMR and the live attenuated have never had thimerosal. Never. You can't put them in there. It would inactivate the viruses that you need to be alive. Huh. It was not a feature. And so then when that argument was quickly batted down, the, the next one was, well, you know what, it's, a, it's a, a totality. There are other vaccines, pediatric vaccines, that have thimerosal in them. That was true, and that was looked at. And uh, what the medical community did is they squeezed down the amount of thimerosal, and I think the only vaccine routinely used in the pediatric population today that has it is flu vaccine taken from a multi-use vial, which means we practically have none of that in kids, and the rate of autism continues to climb. That is a very strong case against thimerosal ever causing this problem. Yeah. But you'll see it out there in the Internet. Stuff never dies. No, no, no. It comes yeah, back exactly. over and over again. Yeah. So... Plus, then you get, you know, the whole thing, too, is uh, everyone gets on that, uh, the actress there, Jane McCarthy, because she's, I think she, I don't know if she still backs the whole vaccination theory or what, but it's, and then people get upset with, people, you know, get the wrong information and then get spread out there by celebrities and stuff. It's a, it's a mess. Especially it can in be medical, a mess. In, this me- in the medical field, you know, because the next thing you know, people, parents aren't giving their kids vaccines, and then there's outbreaks of uh, the measles and the mumps and stuff. We've had a, a, a bad couple of years in the U.S. and the United Kingdom in particular uh, with uh, measles finding unvaccinated uh, individuals, not always children. Mm. And uh, measles is really, measles and chickenpox are about the most infectious agents out there, and they will find you. And this is one of the worries that medical professionals have is that if we don't keep really good coverage with measles, it will find the kid that for very valid medical reasons could not be vaccinated and perhaps create havoc. And the the problem with measles is that we have no good way to combat it once it gets you. It's all about prevention. Oh, God. So, yeah, I mean, this is, this. I guess uh, Ms. McCarthy has changed her idea about what her son's malady was and how it was cause, but it's hard to pull this back. And it's the same thing with Andrew Wakefield, that his study was scientifically discredited, but it's hard to put that back into the bottle and cork it that um, uh, people believe, and uh, this is unfortunate. Yeah. Looking at an article here, it says, uh, contractions of measles, potentially deadly, imminently preventable measles, are increasingly are increasing logarithmically in the United States, and they are at a 20-year high. So. Yeah, yeah, we've had a, a bad year. The other thing that, that is really kind of interesting, it hasn't received much play yet, is that the, the vaccine, the MMR vaccine, we were routinely giving two administrations, one around age two, one right before the entry of school, so four to six, uh, and that, that was it. And we're not sure that that's adequate 
Mm. And um, if you search, there's a very interesting case. I think it was referred to by this on the Google search engine as measles Mary. And uh, this person was vaccinated, got measles, and we always assume that if they had, it's called breakthrough, they had a breakthrough case, they couldn't produce enough virus to infect anybody. Well, measles Mary got two people, at least. Actually, I think she got four, and two wow. of them got, came down with it really good. Yeah, I'm looking so, at the uh, Google it just now. That's weird. So uh, one of the things that's happening is we do have to um, follow these events and realize that stuff in, in medicine is not necessarily perfected. Mm. It, it's best use or, or considered best use. But we do find out that, you know, well, maybe this MMR, it is a natural infection, sort of. And maybe it's not going to give us the the lifelong protection that we had hoped for. So, Well, is it the kind of thing like, um, this is like a hypothetical scenario, but like, uh, I guess everybody gets the polio vaccine now, right? Yes. Like if someone wasn't given the polio vaccine and then they got polio, could it like mutate into a version that isn't, that isn't covered by the vaccine and then cause a huge outbreak? It's, um, I haven't heard of that particular scenario. Yeah. Um, what does happen uh, is, is something actually amazingly similar in that um, probably at, at your age, you got the oral polio vaccine. And um, what we did is we, we did away with the, the, it's called OPV, oral polio vaccine, yeah. in the U.S. because about 10 to 12 people each year uh, were being paralyzed by the, as a consequence of the vaccination. Jesus. And what would happen was uh, the virus would replicate in them. It's a natural infection in the baby, usually still in diapers, and uh, they would produce a lot of virus, but the virus would mutate. So the, the benign vaccine strain turned into a paralyzer. And the caregivers of these infants, who we didn't realize were not protected, perhaps they'd immigrated, perhaps their medical records weren't so good, hmm. they were getting the infection, and they were being paralyzed. And so... What they did is they switched over to the inactivated polio vaccine, which you get as a shot. Yeah. And that will protect, provided it's properly made, without causing uh, any risk of uh, this sort of uh, vaccine-associated paralytic polio. But it's kind of the scenario I think you're talking about, is that the virus itself does, it does mutate. It does change. And uh, it does things that we didn't think it could do. Uh, the, the IPV is pretty good at protecting you from disease, but it's not particularly good at stopping the virus from circulating. Mm. And so we've had, had the, you know, the little thing out there in, in nooks and crannies, and it's hard to find and very elusive. And um, thought we had it tracked down, almost had it wiped out, we thought. And uh, war in Afghanistan and instability in uh, other places uh, has kind of led to a resurgence of polio. Oh God! So yeah, yeah. Jesus. But not not the least of which, uh, there is resistance to uh, vaccine programs even in places like Pakistan, and it's not because of Jenny McCarthy. It's it's other factors. But uh, I don't know if you heard about the the CIA attempted to locate Osama bin Laden with a fake vaccine program. Oh really? No, I never heard that. Wow. Yeah, they had they had traced him down, I guess, to Abbottabad, where they ultimately found him. And so the question became, 
was he really in there? And they figured out that one way to answer that would be to have someone come and vaccinate the uh, the local people in the house, knowing that they moved in, or that would be the pretext. And when they did that, they would withdraw a little bit of blood in the syringe and take it away. And then somebody could do a DNA analysis because they did have knowledge of Osama bin Laden's profile, familial profile, and try to figure out if one of those were were his children. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that got found out. That program was discovered, and the Pakistanis took a very dim view of it. I believe the doctor is still imprisoned. But it becomes one of those things that, see, the CIA, you know, the the classic sort of myth or legend that the CIA is doing X, Y, or Z, including trying to kill people or, or whatnot. It's not really a vaccine program. It's really a genocide program. That doesn't help matters. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, yeah. And I guess uh, President Obama has issued a decree that they won't do that anymore. So. Oh, great. yeah. Who knows? I mean, I, I don't believe anything the government says anymore. So. <laughs> yeah. Sound advice. Yeah, well, they said they just shut down Harp, but I don't know if they really did or not. I I can't get up to Alaska and check. Yeah, so I was going to say it's uh, it can be difficult to verify. Yeah. Uh, some of these assertions, but well, anyway, that uh, that program didn't, uh, didn't. Well, it would have been great if nobody found out about it, but that cat got out of the bag. So I feel bad for the guy who was in jail. Yes. Yeah. So he was just I, mean, I don't know how that will play out, but uh, all I can tell you is don't let your kids work for the CIA would be my advice. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> um, and and uh, we, we talked last week to set this up, this, this show, and you, you sent me an email uh, that, that you uh, had written an article uh, regarding mad cow disease and stuff like that, and you said uh, that, that there was some stuff you hadn't mentioned about prions and mad cow disease in our food supply that the audience might find unsettling, which uh, which is always a good sign. So what's <laughs> well, I wrote um, a review of Christopher O'Brien's book, Stalking the Herd. Yeah, and it was for Rogan and Lobo, uh, which they posted on their Project Archivist website very kindly. So. Uh, um, in the, the book, um, I had a few comments about, um, uh, you know, I applaud Mr. O'Brien's enthusiasm. I think uh, scientifically he kind of um, missed the mark. Mm. But, you know, for, uh, again, people that aren't really necessarily uh, scientifically well-trained or whatever, uh, some of these things about controls and data and methods, uh, they can be elusive. And so I think maybe, you know, next time around, uh, the book will be more forthcoming as to methods and whatnot. But one of the things that was very interesting is that they couldn't reach any conclusion, or I shouldn't say they. Uh, I believe he's working with a gentleman whose last name is Perkins. Um, and I don't know him mm. at all. But um, the, uh, the problem with the mad cow thing is why would someone do these things? Are they extraterrestrials? Uh, is it a government program? And I think uh, Colm Kelleher had has sort of hypothesized a long time ago that this was a project, really, um, the cow mutilations, the dead cows laying around and stripped of certain organs, was really a project uh, done at the behest of the government to, uh, to figure out um, were prions getting into the human food chain. 
Yeah. And uh, um, I don't feel, that my personal take is, the way that uh, Mr. O'Brien described, and, and again, it was pretty minimal. It's a lot of case histories, mind-numbing amounts of case histories. Yeah. Uh, but not a whole lot of specific data. But what was done, I don't think, um, comports with what someone would do if they were really gunning for mad cow prions. But anyway, prions are infectious proteins, and uh, they will basically cause spongiform encephalopathy, uh, Swiss cheese of the brain, yeah, and lethal. Where they've been most notorious is mad cow disease in Great Britain. And about 25 years ago, there was a massive epidemic of mad cow disease, and quite a number of cattle had to be slaughtered. We think... The evidence suggests that some of these mad cow prions got into humans through dietary practices. So we ate hamburgers, for example. Yeah. Uh, some people even eat beef brains. And oh, God. Oh, yeah. Still, to this day. Um, but no, that anyway. makes sense, actually. Yeah, I can, they eat all kinds of strange things. They eat, you know, all kinds of strange things. I don't need to go into Well, back in the day, yeah, brain yeah. was considered to be quite a nutritious... Uh, I don't really like the... The uh, the organ meat stuff, uh, to me, they always taste kind of rusty. Hmm. But um, anyway, the, uh, the mad cow disease prions uh, were certainly in cattle. Uh, because we made cattle into to cannibals, we started feeding back parts. When, when you slaughtered the animal, they, they put it up on basically a, a kind of a rolling dolly, and everything that falls off of the carcass onto the floor into a chute is called offal. Yeah. And that is uh, oftentimes ground up and put into um, other things. Um, Sausages and hot dogs and stuff like that, you mean? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and some of the really foul stuff is, well, anyway. It, you should have saved this for the 4th of July episode. It would be good timing <laughs> for, your, so, for your barbecuing folks. <laughs> the, uh, the parts that, that really didn't go anywhere weren't very saleable were being recycled back to the cows. Oh, boy. And uh, they put it back in their feed, including uh, blood, believe it or not. Oh, and the cows would eat it. Okay, but it, what happened is uh, prions form in our brain spontaneously at a low rate. And we think that um, just like happened with uh, the, the foray-speaking people, the Kuru got into them because of cannibalism. We had the mad cow epidemic getting cows. And perhaps it looks like very likely leaped into humans as a consequence of humans eating cow parts. So there's always been a worry about these things. Now, Great Britain suffered tremendously, and their beef industry was decimated. Yeah. The U.S. never had quite the problem because we didn't do the, the uh, I would call it hardcore refeed like they did in Great Britain. But nonetheless, uh, there is an interest in in prions in the food supply, and Kelleher is is correct in one thing. I don't agree with any of of his uh, interpretations, but he got one thing right. There is a government interest in prions, and in fact, there's a formal program to sample to see to be sure that prions aren't getting into cows. And we've had a few instances where cows with mad cow disease have been discovered. They have, there is absolutely no doubt, they have been discovered in the U.S. 
And so, but very few, not the, the many, many thousands in Great Britain. So the idea of black helicopters, somebody sampling, uh, that's, that's actually kind of intriguing and, and has a little bit of a, uh, a solid ring to it. I don't believe that's what has been demonstrated. In fact, I'm sure that the evidence that Mr. O'Brien brought forth does not demonstrate that, but perhaps the next book he will. Yeah. And so, but there really, there really are programs. Uh, to uh, to take a look. Well, I'm sure if they wanted to figure it out, they they don't want to freak everybody out. I mean, so they would do it kind of under the cloak of of uh, clandestine nature, right? Well, there's been a, there's been quite a bit of argument during the Bush administration, for example, like how many animals would it take to sample in order to figure out what was going on, and that's the the power of statistics is that you can you can do a lot with relatively few, and I'm not sure if there's a move afoot to stop the the program or not. But it might interest you to, to know that a company that wanted to sample every cow mm-hmm. and would be able to certify, we have examined every animal, and this these animals are BSE-free. Or they couldn't really say that, but they could say below the limit of detection. Right, right. Um, that's not permissible. It's not allowed. No. It's, it's actually the, the prions... The, the pathologic prions, in one sense, are a little bit like radioactivity yeah. in that if you look hard enough and carefully enough, you're very liable to find it. And if you do, even though they're at ungodly low levels, for example, mm-hmm. it could create problems if it became, if you had a positive test. Even a false positive could kill you. It could decimate the industry because yeah. countries would say, no, we don't want your beef. You know, it's full of mad cow, which is not even close to the, the point. But right. it could create a lot of issues. Jesus. So, yeah, people do look. They really do look. So do you think they should? Look for the mad cow? Yeah. 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 Of course. You feel safe, <laughs> punk? I, <laughs> I never feel safe. You know me. <laughs> you, well. You, you know about my life. It's uh, <laughs> Fraught with dangers and strangeness. So. <laughs> we gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens! What kind of radio show is this? Cartoss says, "What about mad chickens? Is that a, is that something also that that happened?" Oh, good question. This is Karen again, right? I believe so. Yeah, it must be. Yeah, yeah. She always asks the best questions. Um, that's a phenomenal question because, as it happens, we're not allowed to feed cow parts back to cows so as not to give them mad cow disease. Right. You know who we feed them to? The chickens. Chickens. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So then the question becomes, well, you know, it, that's okay because we've never seen these prion diseases in birds. And that's true. But one of the questions, and if you want to check, there's a guy named Bruce Chesebro who's written a couple of papers on silent transmission of prions. It's unclear what's going on. Okay, It's unclear what's going on. But in some instances, prions, pathologic prions, can be passed through animals without showing sign or symptom, and you can just kind of keep them going and then put them into an indicator host, and boom, prion disease. So the question would be, you know, are the prions basically inactivated, or did you eat them, and are they slowly building up in you as you have your chicken dinner? Yeah. And 
we'll find out, I guess is the answer. So uh, one of the interesting things, though, is that there's a hole in the safety net. And that's why I said, do you feel lucky, punk? Because when you go through and you think about what we're really doing is making the processes more economical so we don't waste anything. Yeah. And one of the things that is actually fed back to cows is chicken manure. Okay? Oh, my God. Yeah, so if the prion, if you're sloppy with the, the offfall that you feed back to chickens, it could. There's a way that, in principle, it might get back to your cow rather directly. Jesus. So, yeah, now, the, you know, the response has been, well, yeah, we don't think so. And <laughs> uh, based on the precautionary principle, I'd say, really? Is that good enough? But um, the, the off-all industry, the, the, basically it's the rendering industry, it, it's a pretty big industry. And so I mean, people are, are loath to kill that. Hmm without really good reason. And so there's a lot of forces brought to bear here. And not to say that there's any kind of, of um, conspiracy as such, but the evidence right now doesn't, doesn't give us any indication that we're having a problem. And so the thing is that we're going, well, let's just kind of continue. And uh, so far, that's, that's sort of where we are. But, uh, My God, yeah. yeah that's just... Well, but it gets worse than that. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I told you, it's going to make your, your audience a little uncomfortable. Uh, well, you know, you know it's it's this is real information, though, folks. I mean, this is yeah, you know, this, this isn't the paranormal. This is this is the real thing. Although exactly. the paranormal part is how we act about it. Mm. Um, you know what, PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Yeah, you've heard about them. Yep. They actually, I think it was PETA. Uh, maybe somebody will correct me if I'm in error here, but they've put people into slaughterhouses and such, to document what goes on. I think it's the ASPCA, but I'm not Oh, wrong. okay, you're probably right. You're probably right. And they, um, they went ahead and uh, they found situations where interesting things were happening in packing plants, um, one of which is, do uh, you know what a downer cow is? Yeah, it's one of the cows that, because uh, they, they keep them around for so long, they keep them so, like, stuck that in the one spot that eventually they, they just can't, they can't carry on, I guess is the best way to put it. And they just Yeah, and so they're, they're sick or injured. Those animals, if they can't walk up into the packing plant, have to be rendered. And they cannot go into the human food chain. So they can go into the chicken food chain, for right. example. Well, what the, uh, the people who are working clandestinely found is that you really don't want the cows to go into the animal food, the pet food products or whatever, uh, you want them to be prime beef for human consumption. That's where you make the most money. And so if they won't walk up the chute, what's the solution? And it turns out there actually was a solution. It's called the cattle prod. And so this thing, one of the problems with mad cow is that it does affect the ability of the cow to move around. They're unsteady on their feet. Kuru does the same thing. That's how it got the name, the tremble as if before God. So the cerebellum is heavily affected. You take the cattle prod and you just blast this animal until it stumbles into the packing plant, and you go, hey, cool, hang it up. Yeah. And there you go. Is that wise? Ah, good question. Uh, probably most of the downer cows are sick or injured, but 
this is the, the prime way to find the animal that does have mag-cow disease. And so when you work around the rules like that, you're putting people at risk. Hmm. So we found a few. Um, gosh, I want to say 2005 in Washington State. I think they, they picked up one, and they, they felt that it had been traced back, I think, to Canada, a slightly different uh, environment in terms of refeed. And uh, um, by the time they located it, do you know what happened to it? No. By the time they figured it all out, because the lab tests take time, uh, we ate it. Oh, or God. somebody did. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, jeez. So. Uh, just to correct myself, it was the Humane Society. Okay. So that's uh, who, because I don't know if you know this, but now they're they're making it illegal to go undercover in these places. That's where I was going next. <laughs> Congress, in their infinite wisdom, has found their solution. Okay, go after the whistleblowers. Yeah. Thank you for watching out for our interests. Okay, I'm not bitter about it, but uh, wow, truth is stranger than fiction. Well, it seems like the only, it seems like the way this is all going to shake out in a way is that something really bad is going to happen, and then people are going to wake up to the crazy conditions of how we get our food. You know what I mean? It, um, for the most part, I've I've had a lot of complaints here tonight. Uh, One of the things that that we have is food of reasonable quality uh, and safety. Uh, Again, nothing is completely safe uh, at a low price, okay? Uh, But it is at a cost. And uh, I think a lot of people don't understand what factory farms are like. Uh, The image is um, very different from the reality now and that the conditions can be rather harsh. This is the reality of uh, mass production of food. But the other very interesting reality is when you create factory farms, when you create industrial-scale food processing, you also then set the stage for massive poisoning events. Yeah. And so you can have, I mean, it's just astonishing if you get a salmonella outbreak, it can be across the U.S. in a matter of days. Oh, yeah, that's why they, you see all those recalls that happen, you know, over, yeah, overnight. Yeah. Yep, and it's, uh, it, again, for most of us in ordinary good health, uh, salmonella is uh, very unpleasant. It's an, a nuisance, but if you're undergoing cancer chemotherapy, if you have immune suppression, uh, it, it can be lethal. Yeah. And we have... Lots of people who simply can't tolerate these things, and they have to be very careful. So, uh, you know, I mean, there's there's all kinds of, of safeguards, uh, inspections that do save us from some things, but cannot. The federal inspectors cannot save us from everything. And, hmm. uh, yeah, I don't uh, – there's just no easy way to, uh, to completely evade all of the problems here that, that are coming along with uh, industrialization. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's uh, it's just the the demand. It's it's kind of like the pharmaceutical industry. You just get you get these giant industries, and then they just start to uh, to really put the put the screws to the to the regular people in in an attempt to make as much money as possible. It um, when profit motive and I guess goals, if you want to call it that, of private industry 
coincide with the public interest, it's great. Yeah. When they diverge, we can have some real problems. And uh, unfortunately, uh, sometimes we see those problems. Um, it it can be very interesting. The, the governmental response is quite interesting. So, uh, uh, for example, salmonella, um, E. coli 0.15787, if you find beef with those agents in them, those are adulterants. It must be recalled. It cannot be sold. It has to be recalled and destroyed, as much of it as you can. Um, but other agents are in foods, and we don't even mention them. So uh, you've heard about Campylobacter, or have you heard about Campylobacter, jejuni, and some others? No, that's no. In, that's in chicken, and it actually is uh, one of the chief causes of GI disease in the U.S. And uh, if you go back and you look at chickens, you find that probably 30 or 40 percent of all chickens sold have detectable Campylobacter in them. Oh, my God. Yeah, we don't say a word. That's why the packages now have warnings on them, and you have to, to treat them very, very carefully. And people who have health issues are really have to be advised to be exceptionally careful about their food. It's not, I think I had a YouTube video, it ain't really dead or it only looks dead or something like that. Yeah. And uh, you would be astonished at how much I got out of a hamburger, just um, just culturing the bugs that were there. No pathogens that I could detect. And that's only part of what's there because I only did it in one simple way. Right. That's kind of like that horrifying thing where they're like uh, all, all the stuff that lives on your pillow. Yeah. You don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> or like go or the old one or like go into a hotel with a black light. You don't even don't want. do that. <laughs> Okay, either one. Okay, <laughs> so yeah, it's a miracle any of us are alive. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's pretty spooky stuff. Uh, we lost Lobo here. Someone says is the audio fading for anyone else? So people in the chat room, let me know if you're having problems with the audio. But it seems uh -oh. uh, everything's fine on our end. I, I can hear you just fine. So uh, no one said anything. So looks like we're okay so far. Um. To, uh, so that 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 threw me off. That's great. <laughs> very uh, very unsettling. Um, Karen says it's fine, so we're good. Um, yeah, I don't even know what to make of that. I guess the, the 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 it's probably better just to eat local. Might be the best solution here uh, if you can, right? If you can, if you can, and and I think though one of the one of the things that people haven't really grasped is if you buy a hamburger, for example. Uh, it's, you would think, okay, that's one cow or a couple of cows. I forget the number on the average that, that go into the making of a hamburger, but these are done on industrial scales, and it's an astonishing number of cows that you're sampling with a single hamburger. Hmm. And uh, so what happens is if only one in a 100 happens to carry E. coli 0.15787, you can still hit the jackpot because that agent is so very, very infectious and yeah. uh, so capable of getting you and can um, can be lethal, absolutely lethal. This is why I warned people on the last time you were on. Uh, stop using those hand sanitizers. We're getting yeah, we're gonna yeah. get in trouble. Don't want to overdo it. Uh, actually, there's a very interesting book out by uh, Martin Blazer, mm -hmm. who is um, a, a physician. I think oh, I can't remember what school he's at, uh, but it, it's about microbes and why we shouldn't kill them all. 
And one of the things that he's, he's studied basically uh, Helicobacter pylori, which causes stomach ulcers and uh, GI tract, and has figured out that one of the things that we're doing that's leading to uh, increasing levels of some of these bugs is over-eradicating them in and on our bodies. So giving kids courses of antibiotics is setting them up, in his opinion, for later issues with things like asthma because we've got their normal flora totally out of whack. We've killed all the good ones, too. Hmm. We're just too indiscriminate. It's a very interesting book. And uh, Martin As- Glazer is his Jeez, name. I didn't know there was, yeah, interesting. Well, if you think there's another disease that people get in hospitals uh, that uh, is called pseudomembranous colitis, Basically, it's a really severe diarrheal disease that uh, when people are hospitalized and put on antibiotics for a while, their GI flora changes over, and this bad bug called Clostridium difficile takes over, and it will ulcerate the colon. It can be lethal. Jesus. Uh, Yeah, difficile refers to uh, difficult, and it's very, very hard to handle. And Once you, you get this situation set up where the bad ones are in there, they're very difficult to eradicate. And so um, what we try to do is when physicians have people come into the hospital, if they're on long-term antibiotic, they watch them very carefully, and if they see any beginning of diarrhea, they switch out the antibiotic, trying desperately to, to hope that they don't get infected. Yeah. But um, there's a new protocol, and it's actually, it might make your listeners or you kind of sick, oh, but Jesus. it's fecal transplant. A fecal so, transplant? With God as my witness. Who came up with that? <laughs> uh, somebody who figured out that, look, this isn't working. We can't just keep switching the antibiotics because once you establish an antibiotic-resistant flora, they will fight off just about everything. Mm. So, uh, yeah, they go back and they process fecal matter from somebody who's healthy. Now, they have to have a good donor. They can't have hepatitis, uh, HIV, anything such as that. Mm. They will filter out uh, what they hope or any, anything that's bad and then basically use that to reconstitute the gut flora in the person who's been devastated. And it, it does right now. It looks like it's got some promise. It's complicated, but we're at desperation measures here. And we're running out of antibiotics. Uh, those that we have, we're probably using too much and uh, creating situations like with Clostridium difficile. They can't be managed. So we're, uh, you know, we're seeing things spill out from the hospital into the, into basically the normal population um, staff, the drug-resistant staff, yeah. for example. Interesting. Those are coming out. Yeah. So. My God. Um, Who? Yeah. Fecal transplant. This is how desperate the situation has gotten. Okay. I mean, it, and we, for a while, we've noticed that Clostridium difficile is an emerging disease. We're getting more of it. And it's probably a series or sequence of many events all coming together. None of them good. Mm. And now, since you're well uh, versed in all this DNA stuff and genetics and everything, I heard the argument recently that um, that chimps are like 96% the same as humans or something like that. That that, that yeah. part's not really. Uh, that's just the base of this of this uh, factoid. And, but they only have like a handful of deformities and diseases, while humans have like thousands. And, and this was used as an argument for the idea of ancient aliens. Um, have you? Is there is there an astounding number of deformities and diseases just for humans, as compared to you know uh, creatures that we are close to genetically? 
Well, one one thing is I'm not sure that you have a fair comparison in terms of raw numbers. Hmm. And the reason is that for humans, for example, we can we can track uh, across very large populations and literally find the one in a million. Right. So that we uh, we we know that that even rare diseases. So. Uh, one that is fairly common, for example, cystic fibrosis in Caucasians is like one in 120. Uh, those we, we are pretty well, we know the, the frequencies, but we know even the rare ones in humans. I don't think that we have anywhere near the kind of knowledge or coverage in chimps. Hmm. And again, the populations that are studyable are very limited, and the populations in the wild uh, those that die in utero, we never find. Right. And those right. That, that die shortly after birth, I would imagine, are very hard to recover and probably never have been. Mm. So I don't, I think just on the basis of, I, you know, very suspicious about the raw data, yeah. I'm not sure I would buy that. Yeah, that sounds like one of those kind of massaging the numbers to make your argument without really having the, without really telling the full story, if you will. Yeah, that's what it's all about. So, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Well, we've offended all the ancient alien people, but that's fine. Um, that's fine. I don't. I don't think that one is uh, very tenable at the outset. Hmm. So, uh, looking at the uh, genome, you could say, well, couldn't you see it there? And, and the answer would be no, not really, because they they probably took a fairly normal specimen or specimens, and uh, and they kind of averaged them all together. So it's really not clear from that alone. Yeah, so, yeah. Even with humans, with the Human Genome Project, um, you might think, well, all we need is one. But in actual fact, the first thing they started talking about was the Thousand Genome Project because we needed to see rarer uh, markers to try to, to pin down, uh, and call them genome-wide association effects, to try to figure out certain markers associated with certain diseases, like Alzheimer's, for example. And we need a little bit better handle on variability. And we'll get that slowly, but it will take quite a while and a lot of intense study. Hmm. So what you're, I guess the, the other part of that, I think you kind of alluded to it, but would there be any way for us to even know if, if aliens came originally and tinkered with the human genome, or is it kind of too far back in time and also too uh, degraded and everything over, over that distance of time for us to really know it? For humans, uh, if there was a distinctive lineage and the engineers did something uh, really interesting in terms of a, a modification, a specific modification, yeah. we might be able to track a lineage. And seriously, we could. Now, I'm not saying that this happened, but um, if the engineers uh, put something in that was really strange and that um, uh, something that we could uh, figure out was probably artificial, uh, a signal, for example. Yeah. Uh, we might be able to trace that back and, and find out, like, you know, we, we see it nowhere until it shows up suddenly in this lineage in Egypt around 2500 B.C., you know, just to, to pick a time. Yeah. Nowhere else and only in their clan, and we don't know where this gene could come from because there's nothing else like it. Um, perhaps, perhaps, and it would be quite interesting. Mm. And that's one of the, the sort of fun things about reading genomes and looking for how they're arranged and, and comparisons and whatnot. And that's where I'd say that if somebody 
is a hybrid, is an alien, and we get their genome, it's not going to take very long to say, whoa, that doesn't match. Yeah. Really odd here. You wonder if, I can't think of anyone that had claims to be a hybrid that actually has ever undergone any tests either. Not to my knowledge. Uh, but I've actually encountered people uh, that have claims. That have made the claim to have had the tests or? Who are who claim they're hybrid. Oh, there's, yeah. yeah, there's there's tons of them. You go on Facebook, they're all over the place. <laughs> they're ridiculous. Okay. Well, we challenged them on the last show you were on to, to get the tests, but no one has, so. Well, uh, that we know of, that we know of. Well, yeah, I mean, well, chances are if they got the test and they haven't told us what the results were, then there wasn't the results they were looking for. Let's assume that's probably – I would bet on that. Yeah, yeah. But, um, let's let's just give them benefit of the doubt in saying that they're they're getting everything ready. It's like winning the lotto. <laughs> okay. So uh, I don't expect to hear anything soon, but, uh, yeah, science awaits uh, the first one, and wouldn't that be incredible? It, it would be pretty amazing. I mean – I would, yeah. I, I would, I, I would hope that it would be, would, would work out for, for us. You know what I mean? I would hope that it would be a positive result. You know, I'm it not, I'm not like cheering case. against these folks. I'm just skeptical of them. And, you know, like you said, we got to well, knock these things down that, that are just cluttering up the whole conversation. And that's, I, I think that's exactly the way to say it. Is that no, I'm skeptical of your claim. We're going to have to have uh, a little more data on this point. And, uh, and by the way, we can get that, and here's, here's how. And I also think that it's important, just as you said, to knock down the ones that don't work so we can get on to better understanding what is going on here. And uh, that's where I say that one of the problems I have with the skeptical community, and we've talked about this back and forth a, a couple of times, is that some of the people are really good at, um, uh, I guess, attacking uh, but not so good at being really what I would call skeptical. Yeah. And that would be, hey, yeah, okay, that's cool. Uh, what do you got for Bigfoot? Let's see it. As opposed to, oh, no, this person's a liar. And, you know, right away with the ad hominems and all the other kind of uh, things that we say as a skeptical community, we, we abhor. And then you actually see, unfortunately, some of these people doing exactly that. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've tried to reach out to the skeptical community, but I've, I, I do find, as you just said, the, the ad hominem sort of attack, um, you know, on both sides. But but it, yeah. But if but if you can't you can't if you're in the skeptical community, you can't say you can't say like you're above all this and then and then sink to the to their level in quotes. You know what I mean? So it's I and I I, I would say that I've actually seen examples of that, and we we talked about a couple that I found particularly upsetting. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it, it, people are people. We all make errors. But the thing that, that I would say also that's, that's lacking in the skeptical community is uh, some people, uh, Melba Ketchum, uh, David Jacobs, uh, they're easy to attack. Right, and, right. I mean, they, they are sometimes so uh, out there that it's just easy. Right, they're low-hanging they're, fruit. Low-hanging fruit, exactly, exactly. But there are other times when skeptics, I think, maybe don't apply skepticism when they should. And one of the things would be, uh, for example, oh, there's a cure for Alzheimer's. And, you know, like every two and a half weeks, we, we have a new possible cure. 
what you see there is unfortunately too often a kind of reverence towards the scientists, sort of starry-eyed, hmm. uh, taking everything that is given and, and repeating it without the sort of a skeptical overlay. Like, well, really? Are you sure? And I know that some of them probably are, but an awful lot of them are very deferential to some and then back of their hand to everybody else. And uh, if you're a skeptic, you're a skeptic across the board. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, you don't see – yeah. Well, it's it's kind of the same as the paranormal community, but you just don't see the skeptical community skeptical about the skeptics. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? At least yeah. in the paranormal community, we if if we find someone that is a fraud or something, the 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 good folks try to keep them out, try to you know not deal with their stuff, not not promote their stuff, not showcase their their work, quote unquote work. Yeah. Um, you know, but I don't really see as much of that in the skeptical community, where if a skeptic messes something up or if it turns out they weren't operating in, in in full honesty, it seems often like that it's kind of swept under the rug. I uh, I would say that for me, I've seen a few instances where they're just given a pass. Right. And uh, we do we do see that. I mean, what you'll see it's a little more, I guess, open. In, in one way in the paranormal community because people will line up on one side or the other. Hmm. This person's a creep. No, I think they're okay. You know, but they'll they'll slug it out that way. With the the skeptical community, maybe a little bit more of just not talking about certain things or overlooking. It's hard to, to put a finger on it, but I think I've seen it, and uh, I think I, I'm pretty sure I don't like it. So, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I agree with you. We need more folks who are just interested in trying to figure this out. I don't get what's so, you know, hard about that. Just to be open-minded about it and wanting to figure it out. (laughs) You have to be willing, though, to to say, hey, um, maybe there is something to X. Right. And immediately then you have to open yourself up to the possibility of somebody going, oh, yeah, really? Everybody knows. And that, that's, for me, the, the the thing that I haven't really had happen to me, but maybe behind my back I'm not aware of it. Hmm. But um, you you always have that sort of feeling that they will think less of you. And so I think a lot of people uh, in the sciences uh, where we don't really talk about this very much are maybe hesitant because it's been socialized out of them. And uh, that's why I say, like, with... Was so upset that Roe and, and and Lobo had said that they were having problems getting people appearing on this show. Yeah. To talk about books and other products. It's like really, that just that really upsets me. That's not what we should be doing. No, we exactly. Because we might be able to get to the if if they, if they could you know if they showed that UFOs were a weather thing at least then uh I would be okay with that. I know a lot of people in ufology wouldn't, but you know it's. I'd rather know. I'd rather have an answer, even if it's not the answer I want, than just have no answer at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, or you might say, um, in this particular instance, we've been able to explain X. Hmm. And I'll, I'll tell you one that that I've been surprised by, uh, and that was the revelation I think about a year ago, when uh, somebody had said, you know, the Area 51 UFO reports, a lot of those were actually, I can't remember if it was U-2 or SR-71. Oh, like Russian, yeah. Yeah, super high-altitude planes operating at certain times of the day 
when they could, it was dark at the land level, but they were still catching the sun. And people were reporting that there were craft out there at altitudes that were impossibly high. Well, now we understand that. And we can go, oh, yeah, okay, I see that. What I haven't seen is anyone kind of step forward and do a study to try to figure out, okay, now what conditions were conducive to these sightings and when did they happen and how many of the sightings that we had at Area 51 or maybe even elsewhere might fall under that same rubric. In other words, try to, to put some parameters there that we could say, oh, yeah, you know what, this time of day you got to be really careful. You, know, mm. you need a couple of other uh, facets to this story before we can really say, that, oh, that's a true UFO. This could just be a high-altitude craft. And I haven't seen anybody jump on that. And what I have seen is noted ufologists say, well, that doesn't explain everything. Yeah, cool, great. <laughs> you know, yeah. Use it to explain what it explains, and then we'll... That will work with the ones we can't explain, yeah. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I'd say the skeptics then can't jump around and crow like, well, see, that's it. Well, no, for some of them. And this is, this is the patience part of science that you can't teach. People are either patient enough to do this research and be systematic, or they're not. Mm. And it will show very quickly. But that one, that disappointed me. And uh, Jeff Ritzman wrote on his blog uh, a post about this that I thought was just really on target. And I think he called it, Ufology Misses the Point Again. Yeah. And uh, I you know, would encourage people to have a look at that to, to get a sense of the argument and uh, maybe the opportunity that's still being missed still there but nobody's jumped on well there's yeah i mean it's like you said they they use this to they'll, they'll blanket everything in one shot just to kind of get be done with it so yeah. it's yeah. i don't I, yeah i understand it's frustrating and with the point to to patience that you're talking about it's that goes back to earlier in the conversation about how when you when you have to satisfy an audience patience is a you can't, it's hard to instill patience you know what I mean? Yeah, so I you're do. you're forced to constantly be singing for your supper if you're in the UFO field. Therefore, you can't really ask people to be patient because they're they're going to move on to someone else who's saying something wild to get your attention. It's um, I think true. Uh, I don't have that pressure, and uh, right. I'm glad that I don't. Uh, I can't really say that I would be any better. If I was, as you say, singing for my supper every night, I'd have to be cognitive of what was necessary. And uh, I sympathize. I sympathize. But um, every now and then you see somebody, and actually maybe you want to ask him how this worked for him. I was at the UFO Congress a couple of years ago, and Micah Hanks got up and talked. And... Um, basically came out and said, you know, I'm a little bit ag agnostic here, that I'm not seeing any evidence that definitively convinces me that we're being visited. And uh, I don't think that went over very well with the audience. Yeah. Well, and, I can uh, see, yeah. I mean, there's a real, there's a real belief factor in, in this whole thing, too, it's, that drives a lot of it. And Again, you don't really – I don't know if you really have that problem in, in general scientific research. No, you do not. And the reason is because everybody believes, and that makes it a lot easier. I don't have to, to talk about 
the measles virus as if I have to prove it exists. A lot of my contemporaries have actually seen it, yeah. seen what it does, and we accept and build on things uh, in a way that is a little more difficult in ufology. And I think one of the, the real problems is that there's a whole lot of people out there in the audience who have seen things, who have experienced things, and who know things that, that I don't know, for example. And so when I start talking about I'm not convinced, in the back of their mind, they're going, if you'd seen this, dude, it'd be a different story, and they might be right. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that leads to attention, and unfortunately it leads to miscommunication. And uh, the thing that uh, I really regret is that a lot of people would take some of my statements as, as basically me saying, I don't think you saw anything, or I don't believe anything. That's not the case. It just, it's the kind of the skeptic, I have to have the evidence or whatnot, I'm, uh, barring having the actual experience. And so you have to excuse me, I don't have the experience. you got the advantage on me. Help me out. Right, right. And that's the... Then you know if we're we're being like critical of everybody tonight, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, and that and and the and the onus to sort of build that bridge then falls on the experiencer or the witness to try and uh, accept the fact that just be just because they experienced it doesn't necessarily prove it to anybody else. And to to help me, and then I would have to reciprocate by listening. Mm. Okay, we call it listening. And I think one of the things that, that happens is, uh, unfortunately, we get too good at not listening. And I, I, Jeremy Vaney actually caught me on this point. And I, I really I owe him big time for having the patience to stick with me long enough to show me a few things about experiencers. And we were having a, a pretty heated discussion about Whitley Strieber. And his book, uh, The Communion uh, Explained. Or, I can't yeah, okay, I know which one you're talking about, the most recent one, yeah. And we were we were going back and forth, and I just was very frustrated with some of the, the stuff. And I said, you know, Jeremy, I could sit down with Kim Cooper, and in 10 minutes we could write a better story than Whitley, <laughs> a more coherent, logical, better story. And Jeremy said, yes, Tyler, exactly. And suddenly, I don't know what it was, but suddenly I got what I, I think he was trying to tell me, and that is that to him, and now I, I, I agree, that's why you feel that what Whitley conveyed in some of these things, as crude and as strange as they can be, that's what he experienced. He's trying to tell you as closely as he can what he saw. Yeah. Not making up a smooth, pleasing story he's telling you something mm. and i said this this is something until jeremy pointed that out didn't realize what i was doing and yeah. so i'm categorizing saying okay no good no good no forget that it's just second nature yeah well it's a challenge i mean you hear in this field you hear all kinds of stuff so it's hard to really at some point your cynicism kicks in too you're like, yeah. all right, I don't believe any of this stuff anymore. I don't believe. <laughs> Maybe you just well. want to throw your hands up about it, but who knows? It's uh, it's fascinating. Now, do you? I don't know if I. This is sort of a. This is sort of a philosophical question of of sorts in a way. I don't know if I posed this to you last time we talked, but do you? 
as a scientist and everything, do you think we'll ever figure out, because I said, you know, it's been 10 years since I've just been looking at this, uh, but these mysteries have been around like my whole lifetime and they never figured it out. Do you do you think we're all, we'll ever get to a point where where they do figure this stuff out or is it such a, such a vexing problem that also is also under the issue of the, that no one's doing a really good job of looking at it uh, that it will slip through the cracks and, and keep being perpetuated as a mystery? It, uh, it, I think you're exactly right in one sense that it doesn't help that it's slipping under the cracks, that it's not getting formal attention. Uh, and it, that's kind of natural because we have pressing problems that, that occupy mainstream scientists uh, in, in medicine and elsewhere. Uh, so, I mean, it's kind of natural. But in terms of will we get anywhere, uh, I think so. I, I honestly do. At least honing it down to a point where we might be able to say, in terms of abductions, again, you know what, this particular area, this particular explanation of alien hybridization, that's not going to work. The, the data aren't there. And until yeah. they are, let's go over here. So we might then, that might encourage us to say, let's take a look at neurofunction in people and see if there's an external factor in terms of suddenly making neurons fire or if it's all inside, how could that happen? And we're getting to the point where we can look at how the brain functions. Now, there's actually a company called No Lie FMRI. I don't know if you've heard about them. No. It's the modern equivalent of a lie detector, only with functional magnetic resonance imaging. Um, it's the same issue as painting the face with DNA. Mm. Okay. I think the way the technology that they have is not capable of discerning lie from truth or whatnot. But as we uh, advance, as, as our ability to inquire what's going on inside the living brain improves, uh, I am very optimistic that we'll get a better feel as to how things work and when they go wrong, when they go right, and uh, what maybe transpires in people, and hopefully some clarification. But I believe it will be a very long haul. Yeah. And, and very, very difficult. Uh, remember, some of the problems, the mind-body dualism, the Cartesian problem, been with us for centuries. Mm, yeah. Centuries. We're not going to find it in five years. Right, exactly. There's uh, issues surrounding consciousness and, you know, they don't really even know stuff that they think they, that people think they know, you know. Well, and this is the other thing that, that, to keep in mind with your statement there, is that our ideas change. And so things that are ironclad, we find out like, well, you know, maybe that wasn't quite the whole story. Uh, you think about how many things you can do to avoid cancer. What diet should you have? And then next week it will be different. So we have all these studies that say one thing, and then the next study says something else. Mm. So it's, it's that Yoda thing, you know. Scientific knowledge is always in motion, and, and we're, we're always learning. But I, I would say I'm, I'm optimistic that we will chip at it. I, I have no illusion that anybody's going to solve it, whether it be UFOs or abductions or whatever, but we can chip at it. We can, we can certainly put down things that don't work and try to find others that do. Yeah, right, because like you were saying earlier about the UFO thing and when they, they, they take one little thing and they say, okay, that covers everything, so we're all set. And that's that's part of the problem because uh, we need to chip away at. It. It, there's always going to be little pieces. That, there's going to be always going to be the exceptions. You know what I mean? 
Yes. There's always going to be the ones that are the things that are still a mystery, no matter how hard, it, no matter how much we've figured out other parts of it. I I agree, and some of the things, some of the experiences people have had uh, in the past uh, may remain unsolved. Hmm. Period. You know, I mean, just this is just the nature of the beast. I, I would say it's going to be a mosaic, and we'll get little pieces here and there, a puzzle, and maybe we'll get some of it put together. I hope so. I think we can do it. I think we can do something. I think it's doable. We need more folks like you uh, looking at it and more like uh, respectable scientists digging into this because uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of really good people in the UFO field and, and in the paranormal in general. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot yeah. of really good folks uh, looking at these mysteries. But there's also a, sort of a problem of, uh, I've talked about this on the show and off the show, uh, there's just a problem of, of presentation in a lot of ways, too. Exactly, yes. And, but, yeah, I mean, yeah. don't – I guess uh, I do a lot of complaining and have a lot of critiques, but I agree. There are many people uh, that I find are doing a, a decent job at trying to do something good. Hmm. And uh, uh, so George Stolarski, and uh, we've had uh, uh, Paul Carr. I, I really like his work and what they're trying to do with uh, SETI and some other uh, interesting things. Um, what, what does he have? The, um, the WOW site, I think it is, or the WOW signal. He, and he's on Twitter. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, he, you know, he's scientifically very competent and, uh, and gets uh, some of the top people to, uh, to come on his shows. So there's hope. There is hope. There is hope. Uh... Things could change overnight. You never know. You know, it's a weird world, and uh, some guy could hit a Bigfoot with his car tomorrow, and next thing you know, it's Bigfoot mania here. But yeah. We just yeah. don't need the, the people who who are trotting out fake Bigfoots. You know, that's the problem. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. You know, it's there's, there's uh, good people in the paranormal, but then there's also people that are just interested in attention, and they're they they cause they cause the people on the fence to look away. To say, ah, oh, forget yeah. it. This this stuff's crap. The guy's got a fake Bigfoot. It's all fake. I told you it's all fake, you know. And it's like, <laughs> oh, man. Well, but you have uh, Todd Disentel, Brian Sykes, uh, Jeff Meldrum, and yeah. others who are going to give this a good look and a fair look. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, maybe someday they'll pull down something big, and that will be wonderful. That would be amazing. Now, yeah. I, I, we got about 90 seconds left, as the British lady just told us, uh, Left in the show here. Folks can find out more from you on Twitter at Tyler Coke John, at, at Tyler Coke John. That's how I guess you say it on the Twitter machine. And that's uh, T Y L E R K O K J O H N. You are an avid Twitterer, so people should follow you there, right? Yes, yes. I uh, troll Rogan and Lobo without mercy. Nice. Yeah, I follow them, and anytime they, they do something untoward, I, I attack. Nice, nice. Which is constant, by the way. They're always, always out of line. They're maniacs. They got some kind of yeah, yeah. obsession with bananas or something lately. I don't oh know, God, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know what that's all about, but I'm sure I just you don't want to know. Yeah, we just got a big pop from uh, from them uh, over that. But uh, <laughs> and of course, you do writing for uh, for their site, I think, and for uh, Jeremy's site and Jeff Ritzman's site, and uh, you, you got to get. Some kind of, i got to get it all collected somewhere. That would be great so people can know where to find it all. But I'm sure they can find out about it via the Twitter. So, Sure. 
And on that note, don't hang up because we're just going to say goodbye to the uh, live audience. But thanks to John and Lobo for calling in. And, and Karen for the question. And Karen for the question. And all the folks in the chat room and uh, all the folks who tuned in live, thank you very much. We'll probably chat for a few minutes here after the show. Uh, so if you're listening live, check out the MP3 later. And have a good night, folks. All right. There go the live audience. So Okay. Some poor bastard came into the chat room five minutes before the show ended and said, did, uh. I, did I miss it? I was like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll be happy to know we actually have an audience of one right now because Lobo is still on hold and he can still hear us. I found out oh my God. after the fact, yes. Okay. So good, good on Lobo. That was some spooky stuff about the meat. That's, I it's, mean, uh, stuff that I kind of had already known but didn't know to that degree. And then it's – but th- you're faced with – see, the problem when you hear that kind of stuff is you're faced with a conundrum of well, what are you really going to do about it? Or do you want to just kind of go on your merry way and, and try and forget it? You know, it's 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 hard to to forget. It is, and uh, just as you say, for the most part, uh, you do just kind of go on, and uh, life will be fine. Uh, we we do have folks who are uh, looking, uh, assessing, and if they they see something coming, uh, you know, I mean, we'll probably know in order to make a a turn if it really gets gross. Uh, but that's where I'd say my, my biggest disappointment with Christopher O'Brien's book was that uh, he had right there with the prion stuff the real deal, the real scary, real deal thing, mm. and uh, just kind of didn't know what to make of it uh, instead of uh, going the fantasy route. Or Actually, he really didn't make any conclusions. 600 pages and he got nowhere. So, uh, yeah, hope the next one's a little more focused. <laughs> But yeah, you know the food problem is uh, uh, it, it. Food is dangerous to a certain extent. You have to be careful. So. Yeah, I mean, try and keep it keep keep it clean and do do what you got to do. I mean, I don't know what. I don't cook well, though. And we and we are. You know, I mean, we we inspect, we watch, we 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 do catch some of these things. Uh, we have to be careful about factory farms, and uh, and the conditions, but. I'll just warn you that the whole mad cow epidemic absolutely is mind-bogglingly stupid. It, it was a nothing change in that it had no implications whatsoever, taking protein and feeding it back to cows. that It was anticipated to do nothing, and I'm telling you, Tim, it damn near killed us all. Hmm. One simple little change like that for an economic reason, and we had the mad cow epidemic. And uh, holy crap. Yeah. So you never so know. Why, People could just do something. Yeah. One little thing could ch- set off a chain reaction of, uh, of of awful consequences. Absolutely. And that's that's one of the things like with autism, for example, uh, or Alzheimer's disease. We talk about environmental impacts or multifactorial, but we don't know what the hell they are. Mm. And, and we know things are very different. We know people are living longer, for example, and we're seeing these diseases change right before our eyes, and, and we're not clear. Uh, is it all just because we age? Well, with kids with autism, it can't possibly be, can it? Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> maybe it's an epigen- epigenetic phenomenon that we're passing to our kids. They happen to be young. We got, you know, made these changes years before. Yeah. Yeah, that's entirely, yeah. Because all of, that's another whole, like, issue. We were talking about the 
sort of the root food here of, uh, you know, cows and chickens and stuff like that. But there's also just the sheer amount of chemicals and stuff that's in food that wasn't the case like 100 years ago. Absolutely. And who knows what's, you know, I don't, they say they test this stuff, but I don't know how much they really test it. You know. Well, I mean? there's a there's something a term called grass, generally regarded as safe, and what that means is that there's a whole lot of additives in food that they haven't figured out have killed anybody yet, so they're probably okay. I'm not kidding you. That's a legal standard. Yeah. And so we have all these things in there. Uh, we have the chemical industry wanting fewer controls. Uh, and more pesticides. I mean, you know, we have perfect fruit and vegetables, but at what cost in terms of pesticide? And, and you know, I mean, it, it's just crazy as to what can go out there and, and how it can come back to get you. Mm. So, uh, you know, I just look at the history. I don't know if you've ever heard of Minamata Bay disease. No. That, that was mercury poisoning in Japan. It was a lot more known 15, 20 years ago. But they were dumping industrial waste out into Minamata Bay, which included mercury. And it was thought, it's fine. It'll be all diluted. It'll just go away. It won't be a problem. And, of course, mercury is heavy. It goes right into the sediment. Bacteria turned it into methylmercury, got into the food chain, and people at the top of the chain ate the fish and shellfish, and the kids began basically to die of these horrible neurologic diseases. Oh, God. Because methyl mercury built up in them. Jesus. It's called metamata, Minamata Bay disease. It was all thought not to be a problem, that we can just dump this and it'll just go away. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Jesus. Now, Lobo's complaining here that I, I'm not answering his uh, oh. some kind of host cue. He has a question, so let's see if we can bring oh. him in oh. here. This is really bizarre. I've never done a, sort of a post-chat caller, but let's see if we can get him in here. Lobo, you're tweeting about me now? What is, what is wrong well, I figured with I'd what, have to what, get to you. I tried to freaking get... Yeah, I tried to get Rhode answer to get to hit your cue, and his computer just crapped out. The power supply died. And then there was another person that was on. I tried to get her to, to chime in, but she's not answering any of my posts. So I said, ah, okay. screw it. Let's try Twitter. It's the 21st freaking century. Why not? Okay. Jeez. All right, Lobo. Take a deep breath. You're on. You're on the show now. So you're, you've made it. You've made it through, buddy. I've made, Just. Uh, I've arrived. I've arrived. Um, you, you certainly have. This is, so what's the, the question, question you're talking about? Well, Upton Sinclair wrote a book years ago called The Jungle, and it was to to zero in on our food industry. And it's a fascinating yeah. read, but I mean, it didn't seem to change people's thoughts about our food chain for very long. It's like it just drifted into, uh, into the ether and was completely forgot about. And we were having these similar issues with food back then. That's just been, yeah. it's, it's being swept under the rug. You know, I mean, it, it, for all intents and purposes, is unless we can get people within the food supply itself to really get behind a movement, do you really think any of this alarmist behavior is really going to change the way people look at our food supply? Because they just seem to ignore it after a few years. The one That's actually a very good point. Hmm. And uh, I would say with Sinclair's book, the one thing that did happen is federal inspection of packing plant facilities. So they're a bit better than they were in his day. But right. the stuff that happens eludes the inspectors now. It's at a kind of a different level that can't really be seen by eye. The bacteria, right. for example. 
But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the way that I would, would hope that it happens is that some industries or businesses are able to extract economic advantage and people reward them. And I'll tell you, one of the great consumer or one of the great companies is Costco. I don't know if they have right. Costco where you are on the East Coast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Their yep. standards for beef are so high that some packers won't work with them. No, oh, wow. It, it's too really? big of a pain. Yes, yes, because they have all these demands about what has to go into a hamburger and how it has to be made and the, and the conditions that some packers won't work with them at all. And so I buy a lot of food from Costco. Huh, interesting. Really yeah, I standard. Where I am now, I um, I refuse to buy meat from any store. I just I won't I won't buy it from BJ's. I won't buy it from Shoprite, Stop Chef. I have a I have a butcher that I go to. I watch him grind my meat. I know where his feet, his meat's yeah. coming from. I know the packers he deals with. It's just, I, I have that opportunity, whereas other people that don't yep. have that at their disposal. I can understand it, but I mean, even when I didn't have that, I would buy sirloin, and I have a grinder attachment set up for my KitchenAid, and I'd make my own hamburger. Yeah, but this is the way again, to do it. But again, there's, you know, you don't know, I mean, you're not going to run into the same problems with uh, the material being put into the ground beef that you would, but you're still a little hinky about that final product before you grind it. You know, where did the flank come from? Yeah. Where did the loin come from? I mean, I was buying, like, full loins of beef and pork. At, you know, you buy the loin, you butcher it yourself, or you buy the, 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 the piece of animal and you, you butcher it yourself. That way you know that at least at that level you're the one controlling it. Yeah. Right. But not everybody has that opportunity. Yep. So, I mean, I, and I don't want to seem alarmist because you know me. I, I eat stuff that I gag a maggot on a gut truck. So, I mean... <laughs> You, yeah, I got no, I get no response to that. Strange. <laughs> Isn't that how you ended up in the hospital for like? A... <laughs> no, it actually had nothing to do with food. It had something to do with my mochismo of not paying attention to my body telling me I was sick. Ah. Uh, well, yeah, you know uh, the injury you described for that is the classic way to get that infection. That's oh. Smashing. Yeah. And so then you yeah, have well, a situation yeah. where you... Yeah. That, that's what the guy... Yeah, Lobo? Oh, there you go. Yeah, I'm here. They, that's yeah, what the woman, the woman at the disease control that was called in, because I didn't even have normal doctors. I had someone from the infectious disease group have to come in specially for me because of yeah. the, the situation. And they're like, you realize yeah. that that's probably where it came from. And if you had told us from the beginning that's what happened, we wouldn't be running around in circles. And I'm like... I did tell you that's what happened, and you ignored me. So, yeah, I was going to say, uh, what, what, well, why wouldn't you tell them? Me, yeah. Well, they asked you, did you have a wound? I'm like, yes, I did. And they're like, oh, well, and then blah, 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 because there were so many other things besides that wrong with me, between the gastroenteritis and the scarlet oh, fever yeah. and the severe dehydration, that the strep A in my bloodstream was like, all right, well, this is an anomaly, Let's just keep taking blood and see if it happens. And then when your white blood cell count is at like 25,000 parts, they're like, oh, something else is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> oh, Lobo. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you you know, lucked out on that one, Lobo. Well, I, I had think, a freaking I think part Tyler of the tree fall on me yesterday. 
Oh, boy. All right, Lobo. This isn't your video diary here, okay? This is a radio show. <laughs> Jesus Thanks, Christ. Jim. No, but, you know, it's... You're like a teenage girl here. Put it on YouTube. Oh, for Christ's sake, don't bring it. Don't, don't start that. Someone said that the other day on my post. They said I was like a, a depressed teenage girl. I'm like, really? I'm a 38-year-old. I'm a 38-year-old American male. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, Christ. Uh, oh, Lobo, you you're out of control, dude. Anyway, I think that I think what Tyler said is true. It's it, as far as affecting change, it, 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 all the all these issues seem to be driven by money. So the only way to really affect any change is to is to drive it by money. So oh, yeah. people no, enough people were like, oh, they only you know want transparency, and if, if enough people said they would only buy meat from places that were transparent in how it was all produced, then it would change. It would. Well, I think again, there's, there's... It's driven by consumer in that instance. Mm. You know, you got Absolutely. people that are going to go to Whole Foods, or they're, like I do, I go to a butcher shop. But, you know, I'm the guys that I deal with at the butcher shop, I'm, I'm only paying, you know, literally a few cents more a pound for the meat, and it's fresh. Then I yeah. buy even at, like, like, a chain store. Like if I go to Walmart, which I'll never buy Walmart food, uh, never buy frozen food or, <laughs> yeah, that's or meat scary, of any yeah. form. Yeah. Well, I know people that work there, and if it gets uh, taken out of your carriage, it doesn't always necessarily go right back into the cooler right away. So, yeah. Oh, you know, no. You know, yeah, all the all world doesn't fit spoiled meat. Yeah. This is like, our, like I said earlier, this is like the perfect 4th of July barbecue episode here. People are going to be oh, great. Eating, eating salad and watermelon the whole day now. Oh, well, you got to be careful with that, too, because E. coli's been I know, I know. Oh, geez, here we go. Just stick to water, folks. Well, then there's the You're fluoride. You're not even safe so. with that. <laughs> See? I'd be more, I'd be more concerned with the estrogen count in the water than I would with the fluoride amount. Oh, you know, we're just beginning to, to really appreciate some of these things, mm. that um, the endocrine disruptors and other things that are out there. Oh, uh, oh my God. This is where I'm telling you, the chemical industry is really pushing for less regulation, and they're dumping more stuff than ever into our, our waste treatment plants, for example, which actually can't touch it, and it goes out into nature. Boom. Well, did you, oh, uh, God. Did you see that article out of Britain? was it last week, that they're actually finding trace amounts of cocaine in the water system because there oh that amount God. of people, yeah. there's pe- that, that amount of people are using crack and cocaine in yep. Britain where it's not being able to be processed out of the water before it gets to you. I mean, Jeez. a trace amount, yep. but it's enough to go, hey, someone's doing coke and it's not me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God! Well, it's a it's a strange. Like I said earlier, though, this is this is like the real stuff here. This is in a lot of ways, people need to be aware of this stuff as as more than the fantastical paranormal stuff because oh, we're still trying to get to the bottom of that. Truth so. far surpasses anything from fiction. Indeed. Yeah, that's what uh, what Roe often says on the on the show. As I, I start yeah. to go, as he says, gloom and doom, he says, yeah, but this is real. Exactly. That's yeah. Yeah. Wow. He gets all freaked out. He, he gets all freaked out. We just finished an episode on uh, axe murderers. 
and it's going to be coming out in a couple of We already got the first half out, but we got the second half coming out. And, what is he, checking you know, under he, the bed now every night? Well, that's the thing. Everybody, you know, every neighbor could be an axe murderer. Everybody around the corner could be, and, you know, and everybody laughs, and they're like, oh, Lobo's going to go to Detroit and kill Rogan. I'm like, man, it's kind of a long drive, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, he's got oh, a point. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, I think we've, uh, I think we've carried on far enough here, uh. Because I know we've Tyler's given us a lot of time, so I will let. Oh, I will no problem. Call it an evening at that point. Okay, um, thank Lobo, you, thank you for calling in, buddy. Thank you for t- having me on. My it's pleasure. always a pleasure, Ty. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Thank you. Tim, give me a call. Right, there goes. Oh, I lost Lobo right where he's. Oh. We said goodbye. I mean, that's kind of the implication there. I don't. You can't. You can't add extra things in after the goodbye. <laughs> He's gonna be. He's gonna, he's he's listening right now. I'm sure and shaking his fist. <laughs> have you ever before I uh, get wrap this up? Have you? I think we. I think I asked you this last year, but I mean, maybe things have changed since then. I know you're working on the Project Core uh, stuff, which maybe kind of constitute a book in and of itself. But have you ever considered really tackling any of this stuff in in book form or or doing sort of a a, a more uh, focused sort of overarching thing? The closest that I've ever come, I'd say no, not to no to a book, uh, is uh, the stuff I've been writing for Jeremy and Jeff. And I was thinking that, just like you said, it would be nice to gather it all into one spot hmm. and, and make it kind of flow as a coherent narrative. But that's as close as I've ever come. Yeah. So, no, not really. You know, a, a book would be uh, probably more than I could actually contribute or the time. I can tr- contribute right now. Right, because you're still working, you know, you're still working on this Alzheimer's thing. Trying to, trying to. We're scrambling like mad for money. We uh, didn't get our re- competitive renewal renewed, so we're working like oh, no. hell to find a. Yeah, this is how it goes. This is the time of uh, uh, federal government, you know, uh, I guess uh, cutbacks. So we got cut back. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, at least I got a job though. That's that's why I'm a teacher. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But. Two of our technicians, they're out. Jeez. Yeah, I know. And they, they're they young people, and they have families, and God, I tell you. I can imagine. It sounds pretty, uh, yeah, that would be unnerving. That it's would be unnerving. How much is, like, how like, with, with what you're doing, how many people, like, around the country are doing, maybe not specifically what you're doing, uh, the specific research, but, like, how how big is the Alzheimer's research community? It's uh, in terms of um, size. It's probably, I would say, conservatively a quarter to a tenth the size of cancer research. Oh wow! In okay. terms of total dollars. Yeah. But I'm going to go to a meeting in July, and uh, there will probably be ten thousand people there. I'll be from across the world. Oh my God. Yeah, half of them from the U.S. So there, are, there are thousands. I mean, the the enterprise is is pretty good size. Well, that's the, that's kind of the thing too, uh, to 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 sort of apply it in a way to the paranormal too, where it's like there are human mysteries like this Alzheimer's disease and cancer and stuff, and we'll disregard the idea that there's a conspiracy to propagate these diseases because that eliminates the whole argument of what I'm trying to say here. Um, so we'll we'll put that to the side, but it, it it's instructive I think for people who follow the paranormal to realize that. There are, there are like you said, tens of thousands of people trying to get to the bottom of Alzheimer's, and they can't 
solve that. So yeah. it's not just that it's not that UFOs are particularly flummoxing or, or, or mystifying. They are, but there's many other earthbound mysteries that we know exist, like Alzheimer's disease, that we also can't solve. And we can study Alzheimer's up close mm. at our leisure. Right. UFOs are much more challenging. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, if you think about it, that's a good perspective. It, it's not all that surprising. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's these problems are, are tough, and we can't quite get a handle on them. And, in fact, we're writing a paper right now. We're arguing about which way to go with Alzheimer's, and we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. We're waiting for some big studies, and we'll see. So. Well, yeah. it's interesting. It'll, uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's a challenging. I, um, thankfully, I have not ever uh, encountered anyone in my family with it, but it That's sounds good. like a, just a terrifying sort of experience to go through. It uh, people, um, the ones in particular that suffer the worst are the ones that get it fairly young, and it's just horrible. That they literally lose everything about themselves. They mm. lose their identity and. That's the I think the hardest thing for their their survivors to to comprehend is yeah. that you know my mom or you know my wife's gone. That's how young story. are we talking about here? Uh, some of them, actually, one of the, the papers we're working on, uh, these people around the age of fifty. Oh my God! To, yeah, now these are the true these are true genetically linked ones and the so-called early onset. Uh, but around the age of 50, they're having problems, and by 55 or 60, a lot of them are dead. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What we've done is we've, we've found these lineages, just like the Paracas skulls. We've found people, and we've kind of worked backwards and figured out, like, yeah, you know what? You have the familial Alzheimer's disease. Now we can actually sequence it, confirm it. And they're trying to start treatments on them very early. Hmm. To see one of the arguments is that our treatments haven't worked before because we started too late. Yeah. So now they're going to try early, and we're hoping for a positive outcome. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, Tim, it's it's more than one thing yeah. that causes Alzheimer's, and uh, the the pharmaceutical industry is driving this because they need it to be one target that they can attack, and that's what everybody's working on. And that's where the money is. That makes so they can put it out in a pill. Yeah. Absolutely. Now here's a here's a crate here's a. Uh, a sort of Alzheimer's 101 question, but that I uh, that kind of popped into my head here that I, I now I have to ask you. I can look it up on Wikipedia, but you you you're here with me. Where what are the origins of of this of the name Alzheimer's? It sounds like it's like a Lou Gehrig's disease type of thing. And how did we even f- find out about all this? Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. obviously people, I, I'm. I'm sure back in the day it was like, oh, well, Graham's old, she's forgetful, she's confused or whatever. But how did it become realized that it was a disease? Well, this is, actually, those are very good questions. About 100 years ago, a pathologist, I think in Austria, his name was Alzheimer's, Alois Alzheimer's, found a patient known as Auguste D., who was in an asylum at around age 50, and she was demented. And he followed her case for a number of years, and when she died, he did an autopsy. Mm. And he found her brain had abnormal structures in there we call plaques and tangles, which we now associate with the disease called Alzheimer's disease. 
So he did the first pathology study on what we would now call an early onset Alzheimer's disease. And his boss kind of campaigned to get this disease named after Alzheimer's. Wow. Yeah. So over time, everybody kind of accepted that um, this was an unusual case. And then later on, when they began to study people who had dementia at older ages, they said, this is exactly like what Alzheimer's found in 1904. Right, right. And so we we now have applied Alzheimer's disease to early and late onset, the whole thing. Jesus. But, yeah, but the idea of it being a disease is really interesting. And and some people don't accept that it's a disease. They just say what? it's a con- yes, it's a consequence of aging. Some people age faster than others, but if you live long enough, you're going to get it. And there's a, there's a book out by a guy named Peter Whitehouse who takes this stance. And he's a, a clinician. And uh, I think most Alzheimer's researchers don't like him. Hmm. Well, but, yeah, um, I, can, I can see why. But we, we did kind of touch on that last time you were on, where it's like, are, are we seeing more cases like this because people are just living longer? In fact, we think we are. Yeah. But uh, we, they also are probably seeing changes in lifestyle. Uh, we now have <clears throat> junk food, McDonald's on every corner. Hmm. We live longer. Uh, most of us are very sedentary compared to a generation ago. Uh, all those changes are taking a toll. Yeah. And uh, Alzheimer's could be part of that toll. Jeez. It's spooky so, stuff. I mean, it's... <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the, the thing you can do, and actually what we're going to put in the paper, is that there might be modifiable things uh, in your your medical and lifestyle history. So really keep yourself active. Yeah. Uh, you know, keep your heart in good condition. Exercise. Uh, you know, don't, uh, don't eat to excess. Don't get overweight. Don't get diabetes. You know, all those things. Yeah. Like, uh, and that will be very helpful to keeping your brain going for as long as it can go. All right. So, I'll try and keep that in mind. I heard, like, puzzles and stuff like that, right? Is that kind of... Yeah, or arguing with people about the paranormal. They all. I'm in. I'll be fine then. Yeah, you will. So <laughs> think about it. Oh man, I don't know. I'm not banking on old age, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm kind of one of those. Uh, <laughs> just have my kicks before the shithouse goes up in flames, kind of guy. Well, yeah, yeah. Die young, leave a good-looking corpse. There you go. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to suggest uh, I said before it'd be nice. Uh, you should think about just getting just 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 buying a domain just to house all these links to your articles and stuff, so people can so you can we can you know shepherd people over to tylercokejohn.com or something like that. Yeah, you should give it some thought. Okay. Um, and on that note, thank you for staying the extra half hour here. I appreciate it. Uh, oh, didn't yeah, really no know how long or what was going to happen, so. Um, let me just throw in the plugs, and uh, then I'll let you get on your way. Don't hang up, because I want to chat with you just for a moment after the show, okay? Okay. All right. Uh, folks, if you're listening to this on Blog Talk and you have no idea what this is or where you heard it, uh, aside from Blog Talk, we are Banal of America, and you can find out more from us at banalofamerica.com, and you spell that B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. We're also on Facebook. Just punch that in on Facebook, and you'll find us. Feel free to like us or poke us. And uh, what you're listening to was a two-and-a-half-hour program here with Dr. Tyler Cokejohn, absolutely free, and it's free for the ages. And we've got a huge archive of 200-plus episodes, also free, 
All that is done via PayPal donations or P.O. Box donations from awesome BOA Audio listeners. So if you want to help us out, you can head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button, or uh, you'll get the P.O. Box address at the website as well. And any donation goes towards keeping BOA up and running and free for all of our great readers and listeners all over the world. I cannot even plug the next edition of BOA Audio. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when it'll be. I'm going to take a little business trip uh, next week, and I've also got a slew of off-site work that's going to be crushing me in the next week. So chances are, here it is June 3rd. You're probably going to be hearing from me again around June 24th. So it's probably going to be about three weeks till we do another episode uh, I don't want to even try and squeeze one in next week. It's going to be a crazy time, and then I'm going to be doing a little traveling after that. But I'll be back here at BOA HQ the week of June 22nd. So chances are that's when you'll be hearing from us again. And uh, on that note, thanks to all the folks who are listening. Thanks to all the hardcore BOA audio listeners who have made us a part of your esoteric audio playlist. One more time, Dr. Tyler Cokejohn, thank you very much, my friend. Thank you. And folks can find out more from him at, 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 Tyler Cokejohn, T-Y-L-E-R-K-O-K-J-O-H-N. I'll never get used to this Twitter thing, but I guess with more practice, uh, it will come. Uh, thank you very much, folks, for listening. Much appreciated, and uh, have a great beginning to your summer. You'll be hearing from me down the line, so have a good one.